0: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend now on BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio.
3: Good morning. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away in beautiful St. George, Utah. He'll be back soon. Don't despair. We have a fantastic show ahead of you. And, you know, if you miss Dr. Matt, don't worry. We're going to be doing, we're going to be revisiting some of his coaches' corners and interviews that he's done, uh, including one about training your brain for adventure. Well, color me interested. That sounds fantastic. Could use a little more adventure in my life. And apparently, you can just train your brain to do it. Um, we're also going to be talking about mental health. Now, this is an issue that's been in the news quite a bit lately. With all of the shootings going on, there are people that are saying, let's arm teachers. And then you have other people saying, we, we don't need to get rid of guns because it, this is a mental health issue. Well, our uh, guest coming up here in just a bit is going to be talking to us about how, why uh, mental health treatment might not be an easy solution to violence. Interesting interview coming up. And, uh, of course, we're going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation, see what's coming up on their program. But first, let's talk to Terry South, who's here to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country.
4: Secretary of Homeland Security uh, Christian Nielsen announced that President Donald Trump will sign a proclamation deploying National Guard to our southwest border to assist in Border Patrol. At the White House press briefing Wednesday afternoon, the president has directed that the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security work together with our governors, Secretary Nielsen said. Border security and homeland security, which is national security. The president has reiterated this many times, which he has. In a press release, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said his department fully supports the efforts of the Department of Defense and Homeland Security that they announced today to secure their border. And he would soon be announcing additional Department of Justice initiatives to restore legality to the southern border. Apparently, there's a lot of illegal, illegal, illegality. I don't know. That's not even a word. Illegality. Is that a word? I don't know. <laughs> it seems sound- wrong as I was trying to mispronounce it. I said it with it. confidence, so yeah. maybe it is. The the interesting thing is, so there's all this, we're going to put more, you know, bodies on the border, and we need to stop this lawless region of the country. Right. And, Uh, we're seeing the lowest number of illegal immigrants being caught at the border since 1971. Interesting. But they're saying it's still a problem, The flow into the country is the lowest it's been since before I was born, so more than, you know, 40 years ago. And the flow out of the country is high. Really? So the people that are in the country illegal, they're showing that they are leaving the country in bigger numbers than they are entering the country. Second thought, we don't want to be here. So... This all goes back to a Fox News segment where they showed a caravan of uh, illegal, well, immigrants. Not illegal yet, but immigrants coming from South America through Mexico. Some are going to stay in Mexico. Some plan to try to enter the country. And that led the president to do all of this because he was watching something on cable news. Well, uh, that is a
3: source of his information, it seems.
4: I I guess. So it's just kind of... uh, Kind of interesting how all this has gone, and he, he does this, throws it out on Twitter, and his staff has to, like, scramble to try to meet what he just said. <laughs> oh, <laughs> He's like, yes, boy. this is a priority as of right this second. Talk to your people. Facebook upped the number of users who may have been impacted by the Cambridge Analytica data scandal from 50 million to 87 million, according to a statement released Wednesday afternoon. That's 37 million more than originally reported and means that Cambridge Analytica may have had access to... To the Facebook data of close to a quarter of the American population. Mm. In total, we believe the Facebook information, up to 87 million people, mostly in the US, may have been improperly shared with Cambridge Analytica, the st- statement read. The company also announced changes that will better protect user information on the platform and said that it will tell people of their information, tell if their information may have been improperly shared with Cambridge Analytica. So be waiting for that email to show up in your inbox saying that, oh, by the way.
3: Yeah. They this reminds me. Uh, I don't know if you saw the the uh, Tonight Show interview that Jimmy Fallon did with Doctor Evil. Who I,
4: I saw it, didn't click on it this morning. I was he busy, but whatever.
3: apparently is running for president in uh, twenty twenty. And his running mate is going to be the most hated man in America right now, Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, great. Yeah.
4: That's quite the the team there. On Wednesday morning, it was announced that uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg will testify before Congress on April 11th, which is next Wednesday, I Mm -hmm. believe. So that'll be next week's uh, firestorm of interest for a few days. Um, One of the things they're taking away is the ability to put someone's telephone number into the Facebook search bar to find them. Oh yeah, because you know you link up your your apps on your phones and you know so take sure. that away, which I didn't know you could do. I didn't either, and I was going to go play with that during the the break, the rest of the show, <laughs> just random <laughs> phone numbers and see what comes up. Um, an Air Force pilot was killed Wednesday morning when his F sixteen uh, fighting Falcon jet crashed over the that Nevada test in uh, test and training range. Uh, Nellis Air Force Base confirmed Wednesday night the Air Force. Thunderbirds pilot, who isn't being identified at this time, was doing routine training. This is the fourth incident involving U.S. military aircraft in the last 24 hours. The second one with fatalities, uh, CNN notes. Four Marines were killed in their helicopter in a uh, Southern California crash on Tuesday, if mm. you remember. So. Yeah. This story, I found this to be funny. Um, a student at a high school in Oakland, Maine, which has a population around 7,000 people. So, Oakland, Maine, never heard of it. Not a, to Oakland, not a big town. California. Not a big town. They learned that a valuable lesson last week after the student was informed by a police officer who pulled him over for spinning his tires that burning rubber is in fact not a right to free speech. Really? Yeah. So Sergeant Tracy Frost, a school resource officer in the town just outside Augusta, Maine, said he was on duty in his cruiser last Wednesday uh, near the high school when he made eye contact with a student who was driving a souped-up truck as the student held the officer's gaze, he proceeded to chirp his tires right in front of the police officer, causing the wheels to spin, and the vehicle remain in place. So he just kind of did a little burnout in front of the cops. Hmm. Uh, or the police officer, Frost, said that the, he pulled the student over and asked him point blank, really, have you lost your mind?
3: Yeah, I think he's lost his common sense, if nothing else. Yeah,
4: the student confidently uh, said he did nothing wrong. He goes, you can't do anything about it anymore, Frost said, and then pulled out a smartphone to show the officer a news article that claimed that Maine's Supreme Court had ruled recently that burning rubber is now protected free speech. (laughs) Turns out the so-called news article was written by New Maine News, a popular satirical website that posts content similar to what you would find on a site like The Onion. Oh, yeah. Right? But more yeah. of a local feel sure. to it. Frost figured that would be obvious uh, enough because the fake article included quotes from the chief justice that read, what good is a huge truck? What good are fat tires? A screaming exhaust setup and a killer big block that if all that power can't be used to make a statement. Like, you know, that's peeling out your, your tires. I, I guess a point. Maybe mm-hmm. not a good point, but a point. <laughs> Rather than issuing him a ticket for burning rubber right in front of the Frost, he chewed him out a little bit because... That's what a good police officer does, and then educated him about the double-checking <laughs> news sources in a time when information online is often questionable. Can we stop going around irking police officers? But just the argument that that burning out your tires is wow. free speech.
5: Hmm. It's
4: like, um, really? I I think
3: it's an expression of your lack of, uh, yeah, and your desire your
4: desire to buy new tires yeah you're just gonna you well, know. I need to get rid of these anyway, right, so but doing it right in front of a cop just seems like you're like, Come get me, man, and then you no, you, know. you don't do that <laughs> you but, do you do what everybody else
3: does when you see them on the road, you slow down by twenty miles per hour,
4: right, and the, the idea of like holding his gaze as you do it, you're staring at him like, what are you gonna do, huh what are you gonna do? yeah, you're just wow. asking for a problem, so you know. And and it's a school resource. When I was in school, the school resource officer was someone like pretty much everyone either ignored or you said, hey, what's going on? Sure. He was just a nice guy. Yeah. Unless, of course, he did something wrong. Yeah. Which the vast majority of people didn't. He was just a guy that was there.
3: This reminds me of a girl that was serving me candy at a show, and uh, she held my gaze Ah. while she handed me the candy and at the last second reached over picked up a piece of the candy and put it in her mouth.
4: Mm.
3: From she did the, not, can,
4: the candy she gave you? She you did not
3: bought. break eye contact the entire time. Huh? She was probably about 13, 14 years old. Right. Probably didn't have a license to be working, or not a license, but legally yeah. shouldn't be working, and she stole right in front of me. Huh. And I was so, Yeah. how do you prepare for that? I had no response. <laughs> I just kind of... Awkwardly and slowly turned around and walked back to my seat. All right. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I got violently ill the next day, too, so I don't know what she had. Anyway, when we return, we're going to be speaking to our guest about mental health treatment and how uh, it's not probably the easiest solution to getting rid of all this violence that is going on in schools. That's up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, in the wake of mass shootings and other other tragedies, we frequently hear that mental health treatments could be the solution to preventing further incidents, Sarah Desmarais, a forensic psychologist and professor of psychology, has studied mental illness. She's also studied violence and mental health treatment at length. She is here to talk with us about some of the reasons mental health treatment is not going to cure violence. Sarah, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show.
6: Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, this is a very obviously timely subject, and we really appreciate your insight on this. What are some of the hurdles that prevent uh, mental health treatment from becoming a viable solution?
6: Well, I think what's important to know is that while it will prevent some incidents of violence, it actually won't prevent most of them. So the the vast majority of incidents in the United States that um, are related to gun violence are not actually perpetrated by individuals with mental health problems.
1: Oh, interesting.
3: Um, So... Clearly, there are people out there that they're not diagnosed as uh, being mentally ill or maybe they're just not aware that they're mentally ill. How do you identify those who do need mental health treatment?
6: Well, that is one of the big challenges. So there are a lot of ways in which we could look at implementing, say, routine screening for mental health problems um, in schools or in healthcare settings, but that's just really not done um, as frequently as it should be. And then even if you do identify someone as having a mental health problem through those strategies, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to, A, want to go to treatment or even be able to access treatment.
3: Interesting. So if there was something like that in schools, what would that look like? I mean, would there be a bunch of red tape that you need to cut through? How would that work?
6: Uh, I suspect there would be a lot of red tape. Um, The way that it could look in schools is something um, more routine in which um, all the students are being identified um, or being screened, sorry, through some um, very kind of a low-level, relatively short process. Um, and then those who might have problems and screen positive on that um, screening tool could then be referred for a more in-depth evaluation. But I think um, we have to remember that, uh, you know, just because somebody has been identified as a mental health problem does not actually mean that that treatment would then be available. Um, and that's one of our biggest hurdles is um, how do we actually get individuals into treatment?
3: Yeah, because you said they, they may not want the treatment once they're identified.
6: Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not just that. It could be that the treatment is actually not available where they are. Um, There are very long waits um, for mental health treatment, well, in all healthcare treatment, but mental health treatment in particular. Um, And then also they have to have some means to pay for it. This is not a free service um, in the United States, and so this is something where we'd have to look at what um, insurance um, might be available to them, what kind of government-funded mental health treatment might be available. So uh, there's just really a lot of steps to think through if we want to say that mental health treatment might be one of the solutions um, to the rates of violence that we're seeing.
3: So at, at what point could this treatment be required?
6: Well, there are different standards across all of the states, but essentially um, it has to be shown that the individual who has a mental health problem is presenting a serious um, risk um, to themselves or to others. And so you have to both be able to say that this person does have a serious mental illness and also that they are not able to either care for themselves or present such a risk that we essentially have to take away their civil rights to refuse treatment.
3: Yeah. And who is it that makes those decisions? Is it a doctor? Is it a family member? Who makes those decisions?
6: Well, that's a really good question. This is not something that just a family can say, no, this person needs treatment, and therefore they should be able to get it. Um, It has to go through a court process. This is a legal process because, again, we are saying that we're going to take away that individual's um, rights as protected under our Constitution. So the judge ultimately would make a decision, but, of course, with um, a mental health professional, often a psychiatrist, who um, is giving an opinion regarding – their mental health, and their level of
3: dangerousness. Interesting. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Sarah uh, Demaray, who is talking to us about how mental health treatment is not the easiest solution to violence. And uh, Sarah, in your article, you mentioned that uh, mental health settings have limited resources and long waiting lists to be admitted. Why, Why do you think that is?
6: Well, there are a few different reasons um way um back almost 50 years ago or more now um there was a a process of deinstitutionalization that started during um the 60s really where people um started saying and believing that mental health um, and psychiatric facilities were not necessarily the best place to house people. And I want to say that that, I believe that's true. But what they did is they started to close all these hospitals, and money had been set aside originally um, to then... Put funding into community-based services, but unfortunately, that just didn't play out. And so, what we've had is hospitals and mental health settings across the United States closing without then the necessary community-based services funded. Um, and so, the number of beds, for example, that are available are um, just grossly um, under-resourced and um, short in terms of the number of people who would then need to be in those settings.
3: Mm. So. Uh... Yeah, so you mentioned that getting getting the treatment can be a lengthy process because of the the limited resources there. Um what are the what are the negative side effects of of having to wait? Are there some?
6: Oh, absolutely. So, um what we know in the research about mental health treatment and in clinical practice too is that earlier is better, so the earlier you can catch um, an individual who is having mental health problems or that they themselves can recognize it, the much better the prognosis, just like with just, you know, any um, kind of disease, and so if we can have individuals coming into these settings as they're experiencing, for example, their first episode of psychosis, there is a lot of good research to show that they might actually have a much um, better illness trajectory and that the symptoms over their lifetime will be much better than somebody who does not get treatment that early. So what we're seeing when individuals are having very long wait periods is that their illnesses are getting much, much much worse, and potentially they're also getting to be much more dangerous um, for themselves and others. They're... there was greater likelihood of being homeless and also, um, co-occurring substance use.
3: Interesting. Uh, how many, how many that are diagnosed with mental illness would you say end up getting the treatment that they need?
6: That is an excellent question. Um, it, it is not something I know an exact number to. I, I can say that, um, the bed um, issue is something that there's been some work on. And estimates, the experts say, probably we need somewhere around 40 to 60 psychiatric beds per 100,000 in the population.
5: Wow. Um, and
6: what they're saying we have currently is only about 11 per 100,000.
5: My
3: goodness. I, this might seem like a silly solution, but you, we talk about people that, that may have mental health issues they don't want to be they don't want to receive treatment. They may not even want to be screened. Is mm-hmm. there some way I don't, I don't know if there's some sort of an incentive program for people to get screened or if, you know, they are diagnosed for them to get treatment? I don't know what that would look like if it would just be in the form of we're going to we're going to have the government pay for your treatment. Is there anything in, in, in of that nature in the works?
6: You know, I don't know, but what I I do think is interesting about that idea is that a lot of insurance companies and also businesses have incentive programs for um, their um, clients or their staff to engage in healthy lifestyle behaviors, and typically that's around exercise and nutrition and um, smoking cessation programs. But I think there could be a real opportunity to also incorporate, as you suggest, Um, mental health screening so that we're taking care of our mental health in addition to our physical health and um, I've done work um, with colleagues looking at the costs of um, providing government funded treatment for mental health and what we see is that there is definitely a cost savings over time. Um, so I do think that that would be one strategy where we could really maybe incentivize individuals to either get screened or have a mental health evaluation and build that into this kind of healthy lifestyle idea.
1: Is that is
3: that not currently a part of, of a lot of businesses to have a screening of that nature? It seems like there are some... Uh, some jobs that you would have to take some kind of a psychological test or, or mental health test, you know, just like if you were becoming a police officer. Are there other jobs that have these types of screenings?
6: That's another great question. Um, I don't know that it's the norm. There are certainly um, some professions where you have to go through a psychological evaluation, um, But I don't know that those are also the same um, professions in which we do find individuals who are at the highest risk of engaging in gun violence. So I would love to see it more um, as something that all individuals are um, invited and incentivized to take part in, whether it's through insurance or school systems or some other way, um, to really take care of their mental health, um, as much of an emphasis as we put on the physical health.
3: Sarah, at the very beginning of the interview, you mentioned that getting mental health treatment could solve some of these violent uh, episodes that we're, that we're seeing in the news, but not all of them. I, why is that about – if you had to give a percentage, what, what percentage would it help with and, and why wouldn't it help with more?
6: Um, I just want to be clear about one thing. When we're talking about mental illness and serious mental illness in particular, we're talking typically about disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, major depression, anxiety disorders, and those um, types of disorders uh, are only really accountable or, um, for about 3 to 5% of the violence in the United States. So that means there's about 97 or 95% of the violence that we're seeing in our country that is not due to mental illness. Um, I also know um, that there's been some statistics um, recently that have come out that show only about 2% of adults who have those disorders actually engage in gun violence. So again, it's the vast majority, um, in that case, 98% of individuals with mental health problems who are not engaging in violence. So I do think um, that mental health treatment certainly will um, help for a small proportion of the violence, um, especially if we're talking about psychotic disorders, um, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. But we need to be looking at other factors and providing treatment in those areas or strategies that would um, really target the things that we do know to be um, related to gun violence in particular.
3: What would some of those strategies look like?
6: Sure. So there's been much less work done on gun violence um, for a lot of reasons that have been talked about in in the news recently. Um, But some of the ones that we do know to be quite robust predictors um, of gun violence are um, anger uh, problems, a history of domestic violence alcohol use and then the really big one is access to guns and so those are um, four factors that have been shown in the research very consistently to predict gun violence and would be areas in which we could do work. Um, So anger for example is certainly something that could be addressed in mental health treatment broadly but anger is not a reason typically that we can um, give uh, mental health treatment involuntarily.
3: Wow. Sarah, just in closing here, and I I thank you for sharing those numbers with us. That's just staggering. Uh, Just in closing, I'm curious to know that obviously there are a lot of roadblocks, a lot of red tape that that we'd have to get through to maybe implement some of these ideas in schools and in businesses. But uh, what would you like people to know about this issue and, and what we can do to start heading in the right direction?
6: Well, I think I would really want people to um, be clear on the difference between mental health broadly um, and mental illness. And those two are really important distinctions that get muddied really almost any time there's another incident um, of gun violence in particular or a mass shooting. We talk a lot about um, how the individual who perpetrated this act um, must have mental health problems. But that's not to say that they actually did have a mental illness, as I described. So I think that's one really important thing. And I think the other thing is that we really need to focus on um, efforts that are targeting the issues that truly do predict gun violence. Mental health treatment would help, but the impact um, overall on the rate of uh, violence in the United States would be quite low.
3: Sarah, thank you so much for your time and your insight on this important topic. Her name is Sarah Desmarais, and she's an associate professor of psychology at North Carolina State University. Her current research is focused on evidence-based practices for justice-involved adults with behavioral health needs, and she consults with mental health and criminal justice agencies throughout the United States and abroad on problems and solutions for implementation, policy, and practice. And again, Sarah, we really appreciate your time here on The Matt Townsend Show. When we return, we're going to be doing a little coaching corner with Dr. Matt Townsend about having a happy life. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show.
4: I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
1: Play ball.
7: Welcome back, friends. You know, life is hard anyway, right? And now you, you're sitting there. I loved that discussion from Andrew Brodsky about this, this idle time. Sometimes at work, we, um, it's the idle time is because of us. We're just wasting time. Um, Some of us may have learned how to stretch our work out, and some of us just are waiting for the company to quit getting in the way and making our job easier. Would you rather, as you think about it, would you rather have a really busy full day where you go nonstop, or would you rather have a lot of downtime to, uh, to do writing, to do thinking, to do, you know, surfing of the web? How do you like to um, To go through your day. And one of the big keys I think uh, I've been noticing with my own time is um, if, I, if I'm if i in a situation where I am idle and don't have anything to do, I've been recently trying to figure out what is my default? What is my default activity if there's nothing else going on? And I'm trying to move it to instead of going to just my favorite uh My favorite vice, which I won't mention the name, but it rhymes with Betflix. Um, Instead of going there and just vegging out with Netflix, what if I just pull out a book? What if I pull out a, a podcast? Like Terry spends all day listening to podcasts and just keeping those running in his head as he's out out and about doing the things he needs to do. What do you do? What is your default? And if you're not feeling good about your default, then let's actually change it. Let's work on it. It doesn't – there's no need to sit there and feel guilty because you're at work and you have idle time. There's also no need to feel guilty um, if you're at work and you can be more productive and you're not. Let's just change it and be more productive. We don't need to to try to also – Um, sandbag it and try to find a way that we look like we're busy and we're acting like we're busy and we're, we're really just hiding out. I mean, you've still got many, many years before retirement, right? If you're already sandbagging your way to retirement, you may not think that's a problem. And again, I'm not here to make a moral call on it, but I am here to help you figure out that if you're not passionate about what you're doing, or, you know, doing it in a way that you really feel good about, you're going to have a really long life. And life's already hard enough. We don't need to make it harder by having our job be something that we have to pretend the entire time. The other thing I'm, I'm convinced of is if you are pretending to make it through the day and you are sandbagging it and you're not sure you have the energy to do it, it's, it's not like everybody doesn't know that. Think about your organization. Can you tell who in your organization is really inspired and motivated and loves what they do? Just loves it. Can you tell who is just basically pushing for the watch? <laughs> the one that that retirement watch that they're going to give you. And uh, eventually, hey, I've only got five more years than I get my watch. We all know, we all know where you are. You cannot not communicate, as Paul Watzlawick talks about. So if every one of us in our organization um, are trying to, to hide out, then we probably are losing a lot of engagement in our teams. And we probably might be losing even more than just engagement. We might be losing a little bit of ourself. What would happen to your energy levels if you could somehow bring more passion back into your life, more focus, more excitement, Um, Earlier, as we were talking with Andrew, one of the things he said is, you know, if you have idle time, remember, idle time is time where your organization, because of the systems, the structures, you're waiting for something before you can get back to your work. Um, And if you're in that situation, then maybe go find something you can do in that time that actually energizes you and makes you feel rejuvenated. Something that really, truly feels like recreation or recreation. That, uh, that activity that makes you feel recreated, recommitted to your workplace. And it might be mentoring. It might be learning. Um, I think it's a really powerful idea to see people in the workplace that I actually can see are studying or learning or reading a book or a management book or doing tr- online training. That's, um, that's powerful. And I think if we're bosses, if we're managers, we really ought to make sure that we're making that available to people. And even create some best practices. We might want to sit down with our team and figure out, hey, what are some really positive things we can be doing during our downtime, our idle time, and make a list of what those things are. And I would seriously make TED Talks, uh, any training online, any type of uh, reading of books, maybe even you break people into teams and have them go to teach each other what you know different, different things that you can do in the workplace. I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff I don't know about my own job that I, I could be learning in downtime moments. So powerful stuff, folks. Uh, it is our life, right? It's, our, it's ours. And if you're starting to feel a lot of uh, dread from work, if you're, trying to f- if you're feeling more exhausted and you don't have any excitement about your job, it simply might be you don't have enough of your passion in it. You're not, there's not enough of you in what you do. And if there's not enough of you in it, then you're going to have to figure out ways to get it in there or you will burn out. You'll, uh, you'll just fizzle out someday. So little coach's corner for you, little advice. Hey, it's just one point of view. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
3: A while back, Dr. Matt spoke with Judith Fine, who is an award-winning travel journalist who lives to leave. She is the author of Life is a Trip, the Transformative Magic of Travel, and The Spoon from Minkowitz," which talks a lot about the emotional journey and importance of researching your own genealogy. Judith uh, resided for more than 10 years in Europe and North Africa, the Los Angeles Times, National Geographic Traveler, the Huffington Post, and the Boston Globe. She joined the show to talk about social interaction between people or with people and uh, how we can train our minds for adventure. And we started our conversation with a question. Or we, uh, Dr. Matt started the conversation with a question that Judith asked. Okay.
8: What did you do this past weekend? Where do you live, by the way? I live
3: in uh, Salt Lake, uh, near Salt Lake City.
8: Okay. You do this weekend
7: that was different from anything you've done before? Huh. Um Oh, I went to a rodeo. Huh. I have never it's a rodeo in my city that I've never oh. been to ever.
8: Did you meet anybody at the rodeo? Did you talk to people? I you did. Know? Yeah, I did. Okay, then you already have a leg up on everything we could
7: But do. I by the way, Ju- Judith the rest of the month did nothing on any other weekend. That's the <laughs> only weekend. So <clears throat> To go to a, to a rodeo. My, we got free tickets and I'm <laughs> a tight <tightwater>. one. <laughs> that,
8: that'll, that'll possess you.
7: <laughs> that was it. And it was, but it's funny, I've heard people that do this rodeo, you know, they go every year and it's this great tradition and people love it and I had never ever been in 10 years.
8: So whom, to whom did you talk at the rodeo?
7: You the know what's interesting, know. just the people around me. I met, I mean, I some of them I was supposed to kind of know sure. but I didn't know but then I met just a lot of people that were around us.
8: okay, That mentality, that you go someplace, first of all, you do something you haven't done before, and secondly, that you talk to people, um, that's how you start. And it could be something very small, it could be an exciting rodeo, but it's starting to have an attitude about your life as being an adventure.
7: Oh, I I loved it, and I loved your article, Train. It's on psychologytoday.com. But bored, question mark, train your brain for adventure. Because you you walk through, I mean, I don't have to travel to do all of this. If I would travel, I'd try to go maybe meet more people and get out there. But I could do all of this in my own backyard.
8: That's that's the thing, that it's a mindset. You know, people who travel, who do not have a trained adventure brain, they go and they see sights, which is fabulous. You know, they'll see the Taj Mahal and they'll see the Eiffel Tower. But nothing really changes inside of them. It's not something it's not deep, they're just doing it. they're traveling on the road and they're making sure that they eat at the best restaurants and they stay in the best hotels. but that's not an adventure it's great it's a form of travel, but there's a whole other way that you can travel every day of your life, and the training starts immediately in your hometown
5: It's
7: a mindset isn't it so so how do i how because my my mindset's not usually an adventure mindset. Okay. it's it's more just, you know, kind of status quo. Keep it simple. Know what you're doing. Keep doing what you know. Um, But you but in your article, you kind of just walk through that. There's just a lot of little moments and little places where adventure exists. If you kind of push on a little bit, walk us through those.
8: Hello. Oh, hello.
7: Oh, yeah, we got you. I don't
8: know. An adventure with the phone. That was. Yeah, it sounded like the
7: Bobbies were pulling up.
8: So here's my question. In your hometown, what is an ethnic restaurant you haven't eaten in?
7: Oh, I don't eat Thai food. So there's a lot of Thai. We could go do that. I've never tried it.
8: You don't like Thai food? No, I've never tried it. It scares me. Yeah. So the first thing you do is you go to the Thai restaurant. But when you're there, you don't go in the usual mode. When the waiter or waitress or wait person, I hate saying wait person, when the wait person comes up to your table, you say, can you help me out here? I've never eaten Thai food before, and I need a little assistance. Yeah. And then you're talking to a wait person. And if you're lucky, that wait person comes from Thailand, because very often they have Thai people waiting there. Or at least um, people who are Asian. And you say, oh, tell me where you come from. The next thing you know, you're in a conversation. If you're really listening. Yeah. You're all of a sudden, you're with a person who's different from you. You're learning something, and you're eating food that you haven't eaten before. You are, and so this could take, maybe it's lunch. Maybe just taking a break from work, and it's an hour. You have an hour of adventure.
7: Mm. I mean, I really it's, – it's interesting because I have done that before on other occasions at other restaurants, and it, it's, it's a different experience than going in and just trying to figure it out and me- eat a meal. It's really having an experience.
8: But if you look at a me- the meal itself as an experience, so every time you go to a restaurant, I can't remember – we have to eat out a lot because we're traveling a lot. I can't remember the last time I had a neutral experience in a restaurant. Huh. We've been invited to events, especially when we are on the road, when we're traveling, and we go to very exotic places, but it also could be in the town next to you. You'll start talking, and you'll say, hey, I do a radio show, and the person will say, wow, there's somebody you should meet. And instead of saying no, you say, okay. Sure. And then it's a chain of events in the course of your daily life that become an adventure. Now, it doesn't have to be something exotic. It doesn't have to be a foreign restaurant. It could simply be that there's somebody you meet on the street or you see who is radically different from you. Maybe, yeah. it's a, maybe it's a homeless person. Maybe it's someone, it could be someone dressed in a sari from India, but it's somebody who is out of your normal sphere of contact and you start talking to them.
7: That's it, it. It's, so it's, it's that simple. And that's, a, I mean, and that, and it does engage you into a whole different culture, maybe a language, maybe yes. a whole experience that, yes. and, and it's in your backyard,
8: and it's right there. You know, it's funny when people post. You know, I did a TED Talk, for example, on deep travel. Yeah. And when people post on it, I always, on all of the sites where I write, I try to answer them. And yesterday, there was the most touching. <laughs> it was the most touching comment I've seen. I have no idea who it was from. I think it was a woman. And she wrote and she said, I was raised not to speak to strangers. And now I'm going to go out and I'm going to speak to strangers. (laughs) And it made me so happy because that's the deal. And also, I believe that when you do that, you're contributing to world peace. I mean, everybody's so horrified by what's happening in the world. Sure. The, The wars, the meaningless, senseless violence and killing. But somehow, if you engage. With another culture, especially I dwell on cultures, it opens your heart to them. You're not going to bomb people to whom your heart is open. Sure. It's, so you become like a little peacemaker.
7: Yeah, just and, and you only have a little more experience uh-huh. with the culture. Even just a tiny bit softens your heart a bit.
8: It softens your heart. And when you read, if you read a newspaper or a magazine online, when you see that country mentioned, you're going to have a personal connection to it. This is all, the secret of all of this, is that it's about connection. An unadventurous life is a life with no connection. Mm. An adventurous life is a life where you're really connected to other humans.
3: Once again, that was an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Judith Fine, and we're going to catch the tail end of that interview in the next hour. But uh, before that, we want to get some empty news going on here. You know, it seems like on a daily basis during our MT News segment, we talk about how difficult it is for thieves out there to get ahead in life. Obviously, it's difficult for them. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be stealing, right? Well, I mean, it could be even difficult to do their job when they don't have transportation, right? Like, it would be difficult for me to do my job if I didn't have a microphone, right? Right. So I imagine it would be difficult for a thief to do his job without transportation. Well, that seems to be the problem that this young man uh, was facing. It says, "A 19-year-old Indiana man it's funny, you think robber, 19 years old. I don't think man. But that's neither here nor there. He took a cab to he took a cab to and from a bank robbery, and he paid the driver with some of his stolen cash from the robbery. Derek uh, Feria was arrested less than an hour after Thursday's robbery. Feria reportedly passed a teller a note demanding money, but that he didn't show a weapon. So at least uh, he probably can't get. I, I think you can still get charged with having a weapon or threatening with a weapon. I'm not sure. But again, it, it can be so difficult for these robbers that don't have a way to get from point A from uh, to point B, you know, but we've had stories like this before on during MT news where people have had to resort to taking a cab to to pull off their heist. And I, I really feel for the cabbies in these situations, because I think in some situations they don't even realize that they are they're helping this robber get away with a a robbery. I think this one did, but. We have uh, we have a clip of another cabbie who was giving a ride to a couple of thieves, and I don't know how clued in he was. All right, friends. Looks like we're here. 227 Mayberry Street. Oh, I've really enjoyed our time together, and thank you for your patronage. Uh, looks like your total comes out to just wait here until we get back and leave the car running. Oh, well, fantastic. Looks like I'll have the pleasure of your company for... Oh, okay. I'll just wait here for you, then! Shh! Keep your voice down! Oh, okay. Good thinking. At this hour, it's probably best to use my inside voice. Well, let's hear what's on the old airwaves tonight. Oh! I just love this song. It's always been one of my favorites. I'm going to sing along. Here we
5: go. Michael rode the boat ashore. Hallelujah. Michael rode the boat ashore.
3: Get us out of here now. Oh, well, welcome back. What you got there, a TV Uh, You want me to pop the trunk? I'd give you more space back there. No, we don't want you to pop the trunk. Just step on the gas and let's get moving. Ooh, and what you doing with all the bottles of alcohol? You and the missus observing an anniversary or something? Listen, buddy, we're going to be observing a funeral if you don't put the pedal to the metal right now. Well, sure, whatever you say, sir. My, 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 what a lovely evening. You know... I couldn't help but notice you're packing a Beretta there. Well, I remember when my daddy bought me a gun. Of course, it was just an air rifle, but I doubt all those crows could tell the difference, am I right? <laughs> This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side. Follow
0: Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show
0: at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
3: BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson here along with Terry South and Becca Hurley, who is currently dancing behind the board as we speak. Good dancing.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I've been working on it.
3: So uh, we have a fantastic show ahead of us today. We're going to be speaking with – well, actually, we're going to be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt did with Claudia Norris, who's going to be talking about firing up your metabolism. I wish we would have listened to this yesterday before I partook in a bunch of foods that are most likely not firing up my metabolism. Movie theater popcorn. Um, And I I, I don't want to admit more than that.
0: (laughs) Different kind of fire.
3: Yeah, we ought to have like a daily log on the show so that I can be held more accountable. I don't know. I I think that would be a bad idea because you may, the listeners may be disgusted and tune into a different radio program. This Jeff Simpson needs to get his act together. Anyway, I probably need to take the lead of Terry South, who is so disciplined when it comes to his eating that he will only partake in one of his favorite snacks once a year during the super bowl is that right terry
4: well doritos it, sure but that's just because my wife's like you can't buy those and you set a rule you can't do that so i have help in guilting myself and not doing that yeah but that didn't really work this year <gasps> cuz they debuted a new flavor during the super bowl so you which had to wasn't try it. available so i could purchase it and enjoy it during said game so i had to get them before And then the next week, there was another flavor that I mm-hmm. had, and so there was two more weeks See, of Doritos. That's but, the other thing. They, they last a week. You have <laughs> these, these the new Doritos. flavors. Yeah. yeah, they just, you know, I'm there. It's great. You've got an excuse, though. More
3: than anybody else, you're the one that typically reports, about, or reports on these different flavors of Doritos and Oreos. Yes. So you need to go out and buy them and partake of
4: them so that we can get— Expert, that could opinion. be a way to justify it. Yes, yeah, it's a work expense. Too. It's my job. Yeah, then I don't I get know. That... The, then I get the eye roll at home, like really. I don't think uh, candy's your job. I don't think BYU broadcasting would reimburse you. I drove around for quite a while to find the new uh, caramel M Ms. And, and it's and worth the drive. They
3: weren't around, and now they're everywhere. It's worth the drive. You can yeah. even get them in like the huge party bag oh, yeah, yeah. size too. Yeah. Are those any good?
6: they're yeah.
3: if you could, uh, I think the caramel's kind of weird. If you could shrink a hundred grand bars down to a uh, just a little marble-sized thin candy shell candy, that's you've got your caramel M Ms right there. Well, those aren't bad. That it's like a hundred grand M Ms. No, yeah. it's
4: Basically. just it's another flavor. It, it's weird though because you get this little lump of caramel after you chew through the candy shell. And you're like, <laughs> that's kind of weird. It's
3: the it's the seasonal flavors you need to watch out
4: for because those seem to be rarely yeah. good. Some of those I need to go back and rethink. Yeah. Find new food coloring. But what happened to coconut? Coconut was a good one. They
3: got rid of that. They always bring it back for a little bit and then it's gone again before you get a chance.
4: And this may be why you have ongoing issues. Yeah.
6: Did you try the wasabi Doritos?
4: No. What? Yeah. 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 Nah. It was
0: like a chip trend. They had Lay's
3: wasabi and Mm -hmm. Doritos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's like – those are the flavors that are staples in European countries though. Go to European countries. They've got all those weird flavors – Always in stock. Yeah. Anyway. Here we just have nacho. Now I'm listening. Yeah. Same. Now I'm intrigued.
4: Nacho flavor. Okay.
3: <laughs> Terry, uh, any other food-related news or what other news do we need to be paying attention to today?
4: No food-related news, but uh, teachers still on strike in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Day four. I guess they have more time to eat food stand in front of the Capitol (laughs) building and yell at closed doors. Oh, boy. That's what they're doing. Uh, Other news, President Trump announced Tuesday that until we can have a wall, we're going to be guarding our border with the military. An unprecedented and controversial position he took in a meeting between Department of Homeland Security and the White House National Security Council on Wednesday, though. That plan was apparently curbed. And they're going with the deploying of the National Guard to the border. Officials told NBC News that the troops won't have contact with immigrants either. Instead, the National Guard will be giving U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents more visibility by providing surveillance by air and through camera monitoring on the border. Uh, NBC News uh, has this based on conversations with people familiar with the White House meetings. It isn't clear yet how many people will be deployed or for how long. Mm. Because this is all off a TV segment that some person in charge saw and decided to tweet out that he wanted this they're figuring it out as they go yeah as they are just trying to keep up with uh, (laughs) they're winging it trump administration will reportedly impose new sanctions targeting russian oligarchs this week oligarch is a word for um billionaires I guess it's just kind of a universal term that's being tossed around but guys that are super rich that have some political influence and clout and they're involved with things so they're uh, dropping sanctions on them according to the Washington Post at least six Russians will be sanctioned but their number that number could change the news comes as tensions between the U.S. and Russia Continued to rise in the aftermath uh, aftermath of the nerve agent attack on a former Russian spy in Great Britain. Last month, the White House belatedly Im- implemented congressionally mandated sanctions targeting individuals and entities involved with election meddling. A congressional source told the Daily Beast that Capitol Hill hasn't yet received official notice about the reported sanction designations. Just word of mouth. Yeah. So far is what the source is saying.
3: You know, I think I looked oligarch up on dictionary.com one time, yeah. and it, all it said was, not you. Not you. Exactly.
4: Yeah. Uh, apparently, the Robert Mueller investigation is looking into, it's investigating, you know, into the election meddling and whatever. Uh, they're looking into several, ta- they talked to several oligarchs as they've come through the United States. Yeah. They stopped at the airport and interrogated them on if they donated money to certain groups. You're not supposed to take foreign money and then apply it to US elections. There's some rules there and they're just What all that it's oligarchs everywhere. <sighs> Lots of oligarch news. Two New York City men arrested Wednesday, at John F. Kennedy International Airport, charged with the illegally smuggling finches from the South from South America. Finches? Finches. Finches. It's a bird. Oh, okay. 26 of the little birds were found stuffed in hair curlers and placed in the socks of the defendants, according to a criminal complaint filed on the Eastern District of New York. My investigation has revealed that individuals keep finches in uh, to enter them into singing contests, says this uh, Gabriel Harper of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the complaint. So they enter the, the birds into singing contests. In such contests, often conducted in public areas like parks, two finches sing and a judge selects the bird determined to have the best voice. Those who attend the singing contest wager on the birds. A finch who wins can sell for $5,000 or more. Really?
3: Instead. Well, I'm glad that I, that I know what a finch is now because now I'll know what to look for on my uh, bird watching log. Right. I'm going for a big year. Are you? No. Yeah. Okay. I only know what that is because they made a movie about it. Was it a documentary? No. It was a comedy oh, with but it Steve was... Martin and Jack
4: Black and Owen Wilson. But that's a real event where they're going for a certain number right. of, of identifying birds all across North America. Is that what it was? Something or just like worldwide. that. And then there's documentaries that show the dedication people have to get that number. People really get into it. And they're just going through crazy extents to see a bird, <laughs> to document I saw a bird. It's really just intense. look it up on YouTube. Finally, a restaurant which took over a transmission shop serving only food that starts with one letter seems to have come, uh, come by uh, Dana Harder has found... A way to succeed with all things beginning with the letter C at the new House of C, or C House restaurant. So it has to start with a C in order to serve it. Yeah. Okay. Apparently. So there's some... She she kind of takes some liberties here. Sure. The owner says some of her favorite food starts with C, and when she decided to open the restaurant, many were skeptical, but after a long road trip of brainstorming ideas, she was amazed at just how much could be sold with a C and... And just ran with the idea. The Sea house has a full menu of brunch and dinner items that start with the sea, featuring community shareables, appetizers, yeah. uh, such as crab cakes, Canadian fries, calamari, and other entrees like Cheesy Mac, chili, both classic and vegetarian, Caesar and California Cobb salads, cheeseburgers, chickpea burger, uh, Capri sandwiches. Hmm. I'm not sure what that is. Chicken and dumplings and more. In addition to the food, they have desserts like cupcakes, cinnamon rolls, cheesecakes, croissants, chocolate, and cookies. Carrot cake? Come on! It's probably in there. So they just listed some of them. And to drink, you can get a Capri Sun. See, that's where you're kind of taking a liberty. It's not really the. It's not the name of the food. It's a product name. Yeah. yeah. I just
0: hope you can get water there.
4: They have to start with C.
3: They'll. Uh, they have vitamin C pills.
4: Hmm. They'll figure it out. <laughs> they have to adjust the menu as needed,
3: but yeah. What would you do if your restaurant was like the letter Z
4: you'd, or X? You'd, you'd probably, go out of business? You probably wouldn't do that. Yeah. You'd go out of business real yeah, quick. Yeah, you have to pick your letter carefully so hmm. you can have a menu.
3: I'm just curious, what letter would you choose if you could have a restaurant where you only served food that started with that letter? T. T. Tacos. Ooh, oh, I'd be right there with you. I could probably eat tacos every it, day. Then you'd
4: have like 90 versions of tacos. You don't have to be, you know... That's true. Not that big a deal. Mm. You just have to start calling it tacos and then fish. It couldn't be fish tacos. That I think you're onto something. See?
3: If you start it, I will invest,
4: let's just say. Really?
6: Yeah.
4: I'll think about it. Okay. But and only in no.
6: denominations of money,
3: <laughs>
4: beginning right. with T. That's right. Has to do with T.
3: Speaking of food and uh, food that starts with certain letters when we return we're going to be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Claudia Norris who's going to be talking to us about how we can fire up our metabolism when we return this is the Matt Townsend Show Feels like spring is in full bloom and summer is around the corner. This means more sunshine and outdoor activities in the coming months. It also means many of us are getting in shape and engaging in healthy living by enjoying the outdoors. When is the best time to eat, and what is the role of metabolism in losing and keeping that weight off? A few months ago, Dr. Matt Townsend interviewed Claudia Norris, author of Fire Up Your Metabolism for Lasting Weight Loss, for the Huffington Post. Dr. Matt began the interview by talking about how our metabolism is the body's furnace and it needs to be fed.
9: So (laughs) That's absolutely right. And actually, it's, you know, when we eat. Is as important as what we're eating okay and and a lot of people don't realize that and a few simple changes can actually make a big difference to to our body
5: shape
7: what explain though maybe different than the furnace so the metabolism though is just the burner isn't it it's the energy burner
9: yeah yeah that's right it's the rate at which we burn our calories
7: okay and so we can burn a variety of different kinds of calories, I guess, I mean, I guess calories are calories, but some of them are going to just burn through us faster, right, so we've gotta get our timing right, like you were just saying, and then eventually, and I know you'll walk us through the steps to do all of this, but we also have to get the right thing to burn, right? I want my fat to burn in my body, not, not, I guess,
9: just the sugar I'm eating. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and you don't want to be, and you know, when people lose weight very dramatically as well, they're, they're, they're losing their muscle mass. And, and we want to prevent that as well. So it, it's all about getting the metabolism to work for us and, and doing it. And I, I loved how you um, said it at the beginning. You know, it's all about health. It's not about quick fixes. It's right. about doing things in a sustainable way. It's about lasting weight loss.
7: And and the the metabolism that burner is going to it's going to work for us. We just have to know not to work against it.
9: That's exactly right. And um, I'd love to explain a little bit more about that, and also Do. maybe discuss you know our sort of twenty four hour society and and um, and how we can modify when we're eating to to cope with our night shifts and you know whatever mm-hmm. kind of lifestyle we're leading.
7: Talk about the lifestyle issue in your article in Huffington Post. You. Mention the fact that, you know, Japanese sumo wrestlers understand their metabolism and they actually work against it, right? They they yes. eat a lot of food and then they go right to bed and they skip their breakfast. Yes. And yeah, so talk about how our 24-hour system might be impeding our health.
9: Absolutely. Well, um, to, to read more about the Japanese sumo wrestlers, um, Dr. Mark Hyman has written about them in his book, Ultra Metabolism. And, and as he says, you know, the, the a young sumo wrestler is, is just a scrawny lad, you know,
5: right. and,
9: they, and they have to work very hard to, to create, to transform this scrawny lad into a sumo wrestler. And the way they do it is they get these boys up at five o'clock in the morning. They do several hours of intense activity. So they skip breakfast. They do several hours of intense activity, and then they eat, and they eat a very large meal. It's not unhealthy. It's things like noodles and prawns and chicken and miso, and, but they overeat because they're very hungry.
5: Mm.
9: And then immediately after this very large meal, they sleep,
5: <laughs>
9: um, and they have a siesta. And then later on in the day, they'll, they'll do some study and meditation, and then, they'll, again, they'll have a very large meal and sleep. And and a lot of us are inadvertently sort of following this sumo wrestler pattern, <laughs> you know. So we might skip breakfast, for example. Yeah. Um, have lunch on the run, and then we're absolutely starving by the afternoon. And you know that's when we might reach for the chocolates and the, you know, the crisps and the not so healthy snacks. And and often it's when we unwind and relax in the evenings that we tend to eat the bulk of our food, and then go to sleep.
5: Mm.
7: And we're not even sumo wrestlers. No. What's our excuse? We
9: don't want
5: to be either.
7: Yeah. But it's interesting. We've kind of, we just find ourselves there, and then we get this idea in our head, it seems like, that, well, no, you need to diet. So you're almost not eating when you should be, and when you shouldn't be eating, you're eating. We're That's backwards.
8: Right. We're a little
9: bit backwards, and, and there's another great person in, in the States, uh, Mark David, the founder of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, and he talks a lot about this in his slow down diet. Um, you know, it, it's all about learning about our metabolic rate and, and then following it. Um, I I've worked with a lot of police officers at, at one point. I had uh, 79 police officers on a three-month weight loss program wow. and And because I run online weight loss programs, I work with a lot of shift workers. So I've recently worked for example with a lot of nurses and um, Shall I talk you through how how to yeah, please around that? yeah Yeah, so imagine you were clocking on at 8 o'clock in the evening and finishing at 8 o'clock in the morning You're doing a 12-hour shift so the ideal thing to do would be to have a good meal at about 6 o'clock in the evening before you go to work. And then at about 10 o'clock in the evening, have a really decent break, you know, so have you know, a, a nice salad with some chicken or have some soup with you know, lentils and beans, it's something really nourishing. And then try to let the digestive system rest over the night because I, so many shift workers, there's so many people, when we're eating against our metabolism, mm. we, you know, we can develop insulin resistance, uh, we can develop IBS. It's very common to see IBS because our digestive system has its own circadian rhythm, its own rhythm of its own. Yeah. So if you are working through the night, it's, it's very important to try as much as you can to let your digestive system rest. Um, so then, say at about six o'clock in the morning, you'd probably have a breakfast and then go home and sleep. Now, a lot of shift workers, they they get home, maybe they don't have the chance to have a break while they're on work, but they get home and they go to sleep and they skip the breakfast. And this is a mistake because you're not going to sleep for as long. Mm. You're going to wake up because you're hungry.
7: And then, 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 yeah, so then you're tired, which is going to make you probably not exercise and be and, and more likely to make mistakes be
9: unhealthy choices yeah when we're tired we eat for energy we just think oh i need some caffeine or i need some sugar
5: mm.
7: what does the how do we know um that our metabolism is kicking in what what are the signs that it's actually happening
9: well, the way the scientists measure it is body temperature but most of us aren't aren't really aware of you know changes slight minuscule changes in our body temperature um you know another great way to increase your metabolic rate is to to um, exercise and to build up lean muscle
7: what does the lean muscle do
9: the lean muscle burns fat (laughs) the more lean muscle we have in our body the higher our metabolic rate and it means we can be sitting watching some television in the evening and we're still we're still burning we're still burning our calories
7: that's a good idea isn't it
9: Yeah. So it's really strength training is very very helpful. Think of how many
7: more Cheetos you could eat, Claudia. (laughs) You could just keep eating.
9: I'm not really a fan of Cheetos now. I know. Either am
7: I. I want you to walk us through this, the average day now, starting, you know, a regular day. If I get up in the morning, what could I do that would, you know, what's the proper way to kind of get through the day to maximize my metabolic rate?
9: First secret, we've got to have breakfast.
7: Okay, how big sorry. of a breakfast? Just a, just a couple pieces of toast?
9: Uh, no, I would prefer a little bit of protein with that. So, you know, for example, some porridge with nuts and seeds or an egg with some toast, you know, or maybe half an avocado mm. with, you know, mashed up on some toast, something like that. So, so, yes. And then basically the idea is to have had about 70% of your calories by four o'clock in the afternoon. So we, you know, so many of us, don't eat enough during the day, and then we, we overeat in the evening. Right. So it, it's about it, starting the day with breakfast is very important. Now, a lot of people don't have an appetite at breakfast. And so a trick that I use is to ask people not to eat past 8 o'clock in the evening for three nights in a row, because that often stops the appetite in the morning.
7: Yeah. So if I just kind of uh, you know, be done with dinner and then not eat again, I will wake yeah. up hungry.
9: That's the idea, that's the idea I mean, obviously there are exceptions, for example, thyroid conditions. I'm sure you know people often don't have an appetite in the morning, but even if you're not that hungry, just to have like one oat cake with a bit of peanut butter, just start small and and baby steps build up, and mm. you'll find you will start naturally waking up with an appetite.
7: now, I've heard people say that we need to to eat about every two hours something. is that true to keep the metabolism going, or is that just a, an old wives' tale?
9: Um, I'd say it's really individual. So, for example, when I work with diabetic ladies, I'll, uh, diabetic clients, I'll initially ask them to eat every two to three hours just to get their blood sugars on a more even keel. Um, but it, it's an individual thing. A lot of people, if they have a, a, a good breakfast, they're okay till lunch. But it, but by all means, if you're, if you're hungry, you get peckish, have a few nuts, have a few seeds, have something. Mm. And so we um, in, the, so, in the morning so we
7: start we have a good breakfast, let's say that's around you know seven a m or whatever, and then um and then and then wait and then you know maybe have some nuts somewhere in between if we're if we're needing it, but then you're yeah. saying make lunch a bigger meal
9: make lunch a bigger meal, and I know that's not always practical, but bring in you know when we're at work, but bring in leftovers from the night before. Um, so many people will just have something on the run. They might grab a sandwich or they might just have a bowl of soup. And there's not always protein in there. You know? um, so if, if you were going to have a bowl of soup, make sure it's got some chickpeas or beans or have um, a piece of toast with some chicken on on the side. You know, just, just try and bulk it up a little bit more. Take the pressure off the evening because mm. um, we've got a lot more chance of burning our calories through the day rather than eating just before we go to bed.
7: That's true, huh? Yeah, and it, yeah, and so if you could, if you have a bigger meal, you'll you'll have a better chance of burning that off, and then make sure you just have a you know a moderate dinner.
9: Absolutely, and you see, actually, our metabolism is highest when the sun is highest in the sky. Really. So yeah, so so when we wake up, it, it um you know it jumps a little, it peaks a, it peaks a bit your metabolism, but actually, having breakfast is like firing it up. And so many people say, Well, you know, I have breakfast and then I'm hungry you know, if I have breakfast, then I find that I'm hungry all through the morning. I say, Well that you know, that actually that's fantastic because that shows that your metabolism is, is firing up and it's working you yeah. know, so we want that. And it's okay to have a snack if you need it. Um and then what happens is the meta the metabolism slows down a little bit in the afternoon. And typically, like siesta time, I'm sure, you know, some, some of the listeners might experience a little bit of an afternoon slump that happens. And it's okay to have a snack in the afternoon. And in fact, if you haven't had a snack around three o'clock, I really encourage to have a proper snack about five o'clock. You know, maybe an apple with apple slices with peanut butter on or, you know, some oat cakes with with nuts, that kind of thing, to take the pressure off the evening. Because otherwise, you know, after the commute home, you can get home, you can be absolutely starving, mm. and that's when we overeat, when we're ravenous.
7: So we really, it's almost like you're saying we, we don't, if we, if we need a snack, take a snack, but mm. we, if we don't want to have these long periods with no food, or we do become ravenous, and then we overindulge.
9: Exactly. Exactly. So really,
7: we're eating to just keep us happy so as not to create this need to overindulge.
9: That's right. That's right. And also to get the balance of the macronutrients. So I'm talking about the protein, carbs, fats. So that's why I keep mentioning protein, because if, if it gets to the afternoon and we haven't had any protein or it possibly even the good fats, our, our brain is going to tell us that we're hungry. It's not able to discern, you know, um, Matt, you haven't had enough protein yet today.
7: Right. It, and what does that do to, I mean, because a lot of people, again, thinking the best diet is not eating. Um, what does it do to our metabolism when we do go these long periods of time without protein or food?
9: It, I mean, it absolutely slows the metabolism down.
7: And it, then it you're not burning. But,
9: I mean, people may, of course, lose weight. Yeah. But what happens is you lose your muscle mass and you slow your metabolism down so that when you do go back to eating normally – You put the weight back on and some, you know, always with interest. Yeah. So so that's not advisable. Um, I'd I'd love to share with you some tips for eating around building muscle, building lean muscle, if that's...
7: Yeah, that would be wonderful.
9: Yeah. Um, Okay, so I work with professional golfers in Spain, and they're always looking to, you know, increase their strength training and obviously build their lean muscle and improve their performance and then reduce recovery time. And what what I do with them is four hours before training or before tea off or whatever it is, it's a good idea to have some carbs in your system. So it would be, for example, some oats. If, if you know, if you were exercising at eleven o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, at seven o'clock in the morning, have a bowl of porridge, um, because we want the carbs to get the glycogen into the muscles. Hmm. Uh, If you're exercising early in the morning, just don't worry. Obviously, please don't get up four hours before, but the night before, have some carbs. So you might have some wild rice or quinoa or even a bowl of pasta, whatever suits your digestive system. And then half an hour before your exercise... A little bit of um, sweet, high, you know, watery fruit. So, for example, watermelon is brilliant, um, or an orange is good, just to give you a little burst of sort of sugar sugar energy, and um, also to make sure you're hydrating. So, keep hydrating before the exercise, and then during your exercise, you obviously keep hydrating. Think about electrolytes, possibly depending on how much you're sweating. So, I just would put a pinch of salt into your water, and then. After exercise, after you've been breaking down all the lean, or when you're strength training you're, break, you're tearing your muscle fibers and in order for it to regrow it, it layers up like if you were flicking through a magazine, it's very, very fine layers and for that to to grow and strengthen you need to have the branched chain amino acids, the proteins in your bloodstream that are available and they have to be available within 40 minutes of finishing your workout, hmm. Otherwise. The muscle doesn't regenerate or or repair in the same way. Oh, is that
5: why
7: people drink these protein shakes?
9: Yes, that's exactly after a workout. That's right. But I just I'm so suspicious of, you know, yeah. there are so many protein shakes with so many chemicals mm-hmm. and you know soy-based which doesn't necessarily agree with people or whey. Um, so there are some fantastic raw vegan ones which are based on, you know, pea protein or cranberry protein and and I always advocate those or even hemp seeds, you know. Yeah.
7: But
5: it's,
9: it's a good idea to have it as a powder form so it's easy for the digestive system. It doesn't have to spend time breaking it all down.
7: I um, I love just the the simplicity of it. Really, I mean, it seems complicated, but and maybe sometimes people overcomplicate it just to have an advantage. But it's it's pretty basic stuff. Kind of, it is. know yourself, it is. listen to yourself. Yes. What would you say as we wrap? We are
9: rap... our very unnutritionists.
7: Yeah. I mean, your body knows, right? And it will tell you. Mm. What would you say is the one thing, the one thing that we, if we would just focus on this one thing, it would automatically improve our metabolism, our sense of, you know, improving our relationship with our body.
9: Wow. That's a good question. Hmm. I think, I think it's listening to the body is, is the most important thing. Watching for the symptoms, um, Re- reconnecting with our appetite, because a lot of us, we, we eat when we're not really hungry and we've become disconnected from our appetite. Um, so I, I would say that, really. And, and hydrating, good. hydrating through the day, because so often, again, we think we're hungry when actually it's the thirst mechanism. We're, we're actually just thirsty.
7: Yeah, that's true. Well, we appreciate Claudia Norris, thank you for your work. And, again, the website, com, where you can go look at her online programs to uh, to lose weight there as well. Thank you, Claudia.
9: Thank you so much, Matt.
7: You bet. Take care there in Gibraltar. And um, keep it up, uh, all of us, really. What did you learn? What's one thing you learned from Claudia that we need to to implement, that you need to implement? Is it the exercise? Is it, you know loading up with a few carbs before you exercise hydrating how about just reconnecting to your your appetite how many times do you eat without being hungry and eat too much then you feel sick or even just managing the times you eat all good news all opportunities for each of us um anyway Think about what you need to work on. We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back.
4: Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball.
7: Welcome back, friends. You know, how cool would that be? Just to, I'm just going to go to space. I'm going to, I'm going to just go fly for 540, 520 days total. Floating through space, four different trips he took. And um, man, does that not, does that not keep you uh, feeling young? You would think. And then going to every high school that you ever visit, every school you talk to all these kids, all the energy of these people that would love to hear every story you've got, uh, it's it's powerful. So one of the things I thought we could talk about in our Coach's Corner today is how do you stay young? What are some ways that we can, as uh, human beings, stay young in spirit and actually find uh, that that youth, that little spring in our step that sometimes we lose? as we just get stuck here on Earth. Many just call it, I guess, gravity, but some, it's just depression. We fall into a funk, and we're not quite uh, as interested in life anymore as we used to be. We're not as curious as we used to be. So I'm going to give you some tools, some ideas to help you uh, stay young in spirit. The first principle that we will talk about is uh, is we got to move out of the shallow end of the pool. Quit being satisfied with knowing a little about a lot of things. And instead, what if we could actually try to take our knowledge a little bit deeper and go deeper into something? Do you feel like in your own life you have a deep, deep knowledge about anything? Have you studied a concept or an idea or an area of expertise? And, and maybe it's your career, but do you have other areas as well in your life that you have, uh, where you have studied deeply? You know, if, um, if we keep pushing for deeper waters, think about it. When kids are young, they, they, they do play in the shallow end of the pool, right? But you may notice that they always seem to be drawn to go down to those deeper and deeper waters. Even if they're hanging onto the wall, they're drawn to the deeper water. And as adults, I feel like many of us have lost our curiosity that drives us to the deeper end of the pool. So we've got to learn to engage our curiosity a little bit more and uh, and see if we can't find something that interests us. It could be anything, a hobby like fly fishing. It could be social media. It could be learning to run social media better. Maybe a hobby like, uh, you know, dance or some uh, religious field of study where we're going to take the topic deeper and actually become really, really uh, good at it, so good at it that maybe people would want to hear you talk about it. And uh, so that's that's just a simple idea that I think all of us could do to find more passion in our lives is move out of the shallow end of the pool. Another way I've found just in my own life is we've got to laugh a lot more. Some researchers claim that children laugh from three to 400 times a day while adults only laugh about 20 times a day. And uh, if you think about it, too, that means kids are getting more of the neurochemicals that you, that you get when you laugh um that uh, and adults aren't getting uh, you know a tenth of that so we've got to figure out a way to laugh a lot more and um one of the fu- funny things i found too about laughter is it is so contagious if you don't believe me go find a simple um video of uh kids like on youtube laughing like little babies laughing somebody sent me one the other day of just this cute little you know chunky little chubby kid Uh, baby in a diaper just laughing and i i just watching it you immediately start laughing because it is contagious um Laughing burns calories, they say, 10% to 20% increase in your heart rate, which means you could burn about 10 to 40 calories by simply laughing 10 to 15 minutes. Laughing is good for your relationships. Research shows that couples who use laughter and smile when discussing a touchy subject feel better in the immediacy and uh, immediately after the discussion and report higher levels of satisfaction in their relationship. Uh, Laughter is attractive. Researchers have found that women laugh 126% more than men in cross-gender conversations, with men preferring to be the one prompting the laughter. Nothing is more attractive than when, I guess, a man makes a joke and a woman actually laughs at it. (laughs) Ha ha! So it is attractive in some ways. It's also good for your memory. You're more likely to retain things if you're learning and laughing at the same time. And it enhances immunity. It improves sleep it uh it eases digestion, it enhances your oxygen intake, it boosts immune function. So if you want to look younger and feel younger, you got to get twenty minutes of laughter a day. One of the great ways to do that nowadays is Netflix, YouTube. There's so many ways um just you know watching Studio C from BYU broadcasting or find some way to get more laughter into your life. Another one of uh, the ways that I' have found that you could put a little more spring in your step is break some of your own rules. A lot of us grew up with really strict, uh, stringent kind of boundaries or protocols that we were living our lives by. And, um, you know, I know people that uh, were empty nesters, and the minute they became empty nesters, everything in the life changed for them. They decided they're going to break a bunch of rules. They can go on short vacations. They could go take extended weekends. They don't even have to dress to walk around the house anymore. They, they're breaking all their rules, simply adding some excitement to your life by by uh breaking some of your own rules. Now, I wouldn't break the big ones, right, but there's a lot of little things that we think we must do every day. Hey, maybe you don't need to have the bran flakes this morning. maybe you go for something crazy, something with sugar in it, something some sugar cocoa puffs, live large. And another uh, simple one is just simply to adapt a life of awe. Awe is that feeling you feel when you look at the Grand Canyon and you're blown away. Or you see an animal in nature and and you want to pull your car over and watch it. We just need to find more awe in our lives. So let's push our limits uh, and let's today spend a little more time looking for something that literally just makes us stop and think, wow, cool, cool stuff. Anyway, some basic rules for all of us to, uh, you know, get that young spirit back in us. It's not easy, but uh, it's definitely worth it. we got a long life to live, so we may as well do it with some hope and some spirit. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life.
3: Here on the program, uh, we revisited part of an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Judith Fine, who's, a, a, who's she's an award-winning travel journalist who is also the author of Life is a Trip, the Transformative Magic of Travel. And uh, we're going to finish off that interview. Judith Fine begins by telling a story about talking with a stranger, which led to meeting some fascinating people.
8: Well, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay,
3: yeah, beautiful.
8: Okay, so there was an art show here this past weekend. And I went, and they had galleries from around the world, contemporary art. Now you'd say, that's not really adventure. You go and look at art. But I walked in, and there was somebody I knew. And she was with a gentleman, and she said, I want to introduce you to this man. He's one of the artists from South Africa. And I said, hi, how are you doing? And I said to him, what is your tribal affiliation? Huh. And he said, I am Zulu. And I said, can I tell you a really weird experience my husband and I had in South Africa? And he said, sure, go ahead. And I said, my husband, we we flew in a plane that was not properly pressurized, I think, and he had bad allergies. It went into his ear, and he was almost, his eardrum was almost going to burst. And we went to every doctor you can imagine, and he was taking antibiotics and steroids. Absolutely nothing was helping him. So I said to him, almost as a joke, let's go to a to a Zulu healer, to a Zulu sangoma, they're called. Uh And we went. And she did this ceremony. He never told her what was wrong. But she looked at him, and she said, it it wasn't in English, it was translated, but she said, you think the problem is your ear, but the problem is your ancestors. You don't (laughs) know how to connect to your ancestors. And she tells my husband a ceremony to do with lighting candles, and he does it. And he invites in his ancestors, and his ear got better when he went home.
5: holy cow
8: so, so I t- it was quite an experience, yeah. and I told this experience to this strange to the stranger, a guy from South Africa, and he said to me, "Can I tell you a secret?" And I said, "Well, of course you can." And he said, "One of the artists here is a Zulu Sangoma from South Africa.
5: holy cow.
8: so I said, "Of course, of course I want to meet her." so he takes me to play where I would never have gone no. I would never have no. gone." That's the deal. And she looks at me, and she says to me, there's a woman standing next to you. I think it's your mother's mother. And I said, oh, wow, how could you know that? Uh, My last book was about the importance of the ancestors, and it was about my mother's mother.
7: Oh, my heavens.
8: So I'm just telling you how going to an art show, I mean, that was a longer story than I had. No, but...
7: Look at all the connections. Because, like you, even just asked him, "What's your tribal affiliation?" If you haven't ever dealt with anybody in Africa, you wouldn't know to ask that. But so one experience leads to the next, which it almost just seems like, you know, it just it gets more rich and more rich.
8: More rich, and you know something: people are very afraid to ask questions. Yeah. Why do you think that is?
7: Well, maybe we don't want to offend, or we don't want to seem ignorant.
8: Oh, that's an ind- Well, you're very interesting on
7: both sides. <laughs>
8: you don't want to offend. You don't. Okay, first of all, if you come from another culture from a person, um, you will offend. Yeah, there's something you're going to do in the course of being with someone from another culture or traveling to another culture. But you know what? It's forgiven. You haven't murdered anybody, right?
7: You just asked a question. Say,
8: you know, Bill said you. You know, in our culture, it's not polite to to ask that. We went to a, um, we were in Lapland in the north of Finland with Sami reindeer herders. It was such a beautiful, incredible lifestyle. And I said to one of the herders, how many reindeer do you have? They were white reindeer, pristine white reindeer. And I said, how many do you have? And he was offended. He said, do I ask you how much money you have in the bank?
7: Oh, interesting.
8: Because that's his.
7: Yeah, that was his money. Yeah.
8: But he wasn't angry. I said, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. And he said, that's okay, I know you didn't know. That's the end
7: of it. Interesting. But lesson learned. And a point made that you can now make and share. Yeah. I mean, that's it does it. make life richer. I mean, a lot of this, like you said, it's just connecting, right? It's, it's about making a connection with the humans that you're around.
8: With the humans you're in. Okay, so I have another question. James. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Where do your ancestors come from?
7: Uh, Scotland and Ireland.
8: And how far back do you know?
7: Um, well, I know pretty far back. Uh, well, my, my family knows pretty far back, but uh, probably 400 years.
8: Wow, that's pretty unusual. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the
7: Mormon connection, right? We're big yes, into genealogy.
8: Okay, so what I've been doing, another thing with connection and making your life an adventure, <clears throat> what I've become from my last book is I'm calling myself an emotional genealogist. Hmm. So it's not about the names and dates, which you're lucky enough to know, (laughs) if you know more about influences, of course. But this is about tracking back the behaviors in your family and what you have inherited. So, in other words, you know, was there, you know, cold withholding behavior? Was there aggressive behavior? Was there, um, you know, punishing behavior? What were the behaviors? And not you know, there were the yeah. good ones, of course. But what are the not necessarily good behaviors that have been passed down in your family? And what this requires is to start really talking to people, especially older people in your family, yeah. about how did, uh, you know, Uncle Mel treat Aunt uh, Susie, right? Mm. And, and get
7: the stories, right? and And hear the stories.
8: And hear the stories and then see how they have impacted you in your life, because even if you don't know the stories, they do. Yeah. They impact every choice you make, every decision. So I've been doing this emotional genealogy, and what happens is I start talking to other people about it. Like I'll say to them, like I said to you, you know, um, where do your, your ancestors come from? Yeah. You know? And if I'm lucky, it's someone like you. You say, I know back for 400 years. But then I say, what are some of the behaviors that, you know, what did your mother and father, how did your mother and right. father to treat you and how did their parents treat them so that you understand how you fit in and people love
7: you. Oh, I think that. that's fantastic. And then you can share these stories and what's amazing too is just hearing somebody's accent or hearing somebody's name. Yes. You can then start saying so that you could just ask that simple question, which is if you notice how good you are at that Judith, that's maybe the journalist in you. <laughs> you 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 ask the questions and the questions people like to talk about themselves to some yeah. degree.
8: Talk about themselves if they are listened to that's the second Mm. equation that just talking of excuse me allergies and Santa Fe but just talking about yourself is a kind of selfie It's like taking a selfie yeah look at me look at me but if you talk about yourself and if someone talks about herself his himself and you are a really good listener Then something happens, there's transformation between the two of you, and people will open up and tell you things you will not believe. But you know what? Then you also talk to them with a little less fear and a little more intimacy, and suddenly your conversation becomes an adventure rather than just, um, you know, hi, how you doing?
3: That sounds really interesting, and I, I really ought to do some more traveling myself, hoping to do that. Uh, In the little time that we have left before BBC News, we're going to do a little bit of empty news, Uh, really the other BBC News here on the Matt Townsend Show. Authorities in in Wisconsin are on the hunt for a serial toilet clogger who has been causing a stinky mess worth thousands of dollars in repairs. Actually, that is not a completely accurate sound because he's a toilet clogger. Because they're not... I guess we need a a clogged toilet sound. The suspect, yeah, the suspect has been clogging the women's bathroom at the uh, Deland Community Center in Sheboygan. Probably the the most fun word to say that I can think of off the top of my head, Sheboygan. That's a good one. Really? Is there another word that is more fun than that? So uh, he's been clogging the women's bathroom with a 20-ounce soda bottle for the past year and a half, according to the Sheboygan Police Department. How does one do this and how many flushes does it take? A post on the department's Facebook page read, why do this? I don't know. But if you help us find the person, I'll tell you. This is very strange and gross, but that is the reality of life. Police and the Department of Public Works are urging the community not to throw trash in public toilets. You know, it's because of people like this that you always see those signs in bathrooms that really you read them and you start laughing because you would think anyone with common sense would know that you don't throw your trash down the toilet. But maybe, yeah, maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Maybe this guy just has no idea. Maybe he thinks when he downs that 20-ounce a bottle of cherry coke that that's the best place for it
0: while he's using the women's bathroom,
3: or maybe he's trying to make a statement, you know, so many of these, so, many, so much of this plastic ends up back in the water anyway. I'm just gonna put it right in the toilet.
0: Maybe it's art, maybe like Banksy,
3: but sounds like a Shia LaBeouf with art
5: toilets.
3: thing. <laughs> Anyway, again, don't throw your soda bottles down the toilet. Seems like common sense, but apparently not. Anyway, when we return, we're going to be uh, continuing the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. BBC News is up next.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at
0: 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend.
1: Now on
5: BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio.
3: Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson joined here by Terry South and Becca Hurley as well. And coming up on the program, we've got an interesting interview and uh, really one that's we ought to think closely about because it's about first impressions. First impressions have a lasting impact. Do you feel like that's been true in your life, Terry? Yes and no. Yes and
4: no? There's some people where all they know of you is that first time they saw you and met you, and then that's you can tell that that's kind of colored every thought they've had about you. Yeah, and there's other people that seem to get by that for some reason. Uh, yeah, I think it depends on the
3: other person. You know, if they're the type of person that can't let things go, then uh, yeah,
4: they're gonna they're gonna remember that first impression forever. I met this guy that's he, he has a reputa- reputation of being kind of handy, being mm-hmm. kind of that guy that always has knows how to fix something, knows how things yeah. operate. And we're camping and I go to set my tent up and I kind of fumble around with my tent for a while. And he's just looking at me and he said something like, don't you know how to set this up? Yeah. And he didn't say it, but, you know, it's punctuated with you idiot, right? He didn't say that, <laughs> but that's the that's how it felt, right? Yeah. And then in future interactions, that doesn't seem to, to, to linger. In my mind, the first thing he ever said to me was that I was a moron, basically. Sure. You know? yeah. Even though he didn't say that myself inner commentary finished his thought Yeah, that's but that's not how he he deals with me at all. I don't see that. I don't, I don't see him looking at me and then going, "Oh man, we don't <laughs> want to talk to that guy." So, you know, it's 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 also, you know, within yourself where you think you made a bad first impression. Mm-hmm. Maybe that lingers right. also.
3: And I a lot of times before I meet somebody, if I know I'm going to meet somebody, I try not to have other people tell me what how I should feel about that person. Right. Because that's a little unfair to that person and you know, maybe they didn't have a relationship a good relationship with a person that's painting this negative picture. So that might be another idea. But Hmm. we're gonna be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Vivian Zayas. And uh, hopefully she'll have some good insights on first impressions. But before all that, we want to uh, talk to Terry South
4: though, and see what's going on around the rest of the country. An angry meeting between Donald Trump and his national security team and the military's top brass this week saw the president demand the U.S. finish its mission against ISIS in Syria within six months. An angry meeting. An angry meeting. Wow. CNN reports that during the National Security Council meeting at the White House, Trump was warned by advisors, including General Joseph Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chief of staff that leaving Syria before the job was finished would allow Russia, Turkey and Iran to exert greater control over the country. Dunford reportedly asked the president to uh, to, uh, what exactly he wanted to see happen in Syria, to which Trump replied, U.S. troops must finish their mission against ISIS in Syria within six months. Mm. The report states that military uh, officials, including Defense Secretary James Mattis, warned that the deadline was unrealistic, but Trump responded by telling his team to get it done. Trump reportedly spent much of the meeting complaining about how much the uh, Syria mission was costing the U.S. with nothing in return. Wednesday afternoon, the White House said that the U.S. continues to support the efforts in Syria and gave no timeline for any troop withdrawal, but did note that the president wants to get us out of there. Wow, six months. It isn't like, you're, it isn't like a building downtown that's had a bunch of problems. and Let's get this done. You just can't do that because you don't know... What the political situation sure. is, if you pull out, it could turn into the same situation that caused uh, in Iraq that led to ISIS. I'm going to so, go out on a limb and say it's not going to be done in six months. No. So, yeah. It's something that seems like it may linger for a while. Mm. We have two to 3,000 troops, I read, there. So it's not like it's a huge number. But, yeah, yeah. It has been going on for a while, and these just things like Iraq take and time. Afghanistan and yeah. all this other stuff. So. Uh, other news, speaking of the White House, Wednesday, to follow up on Donald Trump's surprise announcement that he would order the military to help secure the southern border, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen refused to detail the size, scope, or cost of the planned deployment of the National Guard troops, but said that it was hoped they could be deployed immediately as early as Wednesday night. That, wow. had, that hasn't happened, by the way. Oh. Wednesday evening, the, the senior administration official said the president had signed a proclamation authorizing the National Guard to assist the Border Patrol. Trump wants to send the U.S. military to protect the border with Mexico, while the new border wall he wants built uh, wants is built. And Nielsen uh, said also the administration was looking into options for the military to build the wall, hmm. which the military said they won't do because it's not their... That's not what they do. They don't build walls. Right? <laughs> they have engineers, but that's different. They have different. more important things to do. Uh, it says there. Uh, she said the administration hopes the deployment of the National Guard will begin immediately and the Trump officials are in touch with coordinating with governors in impacted states, which means the border states of Texas, Arizona, New Mexico. I'm yep. trying to think where the Gulf is. Yeah, right yeah. around there. Yeah. Uh, she also said that the U.S. has also been in touch with Mexico about the decision and that Mexicans understand and respect our national sovereignty.
3: And are they still planning on not paying for the Let's, wall? Yeah, okay. not going to pay for the
4: wall. Uh, what's interesting is the question of who's going to pay for the deployment. When mm-hmm. uh, Obama and President Bush did it, it was kind of expensive to put the, the number of troops they did on the border, and uh, they, it seems to be the uh, the border states will pay for it. Could we, and I don't may, know if they want to pay for it. Maybe we need
3: to have some sort of athletic competition Ooh. between the United States and Mexico, okay. and the losers have to pay for it. Does that sound like a good idea? Because you could raise money mm. in ticket sales, people going to these events. Okay. Uh, just hear me out. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think what athletic
4: event could work because we can't play soccer because we usually lose to Mexico.
3: Volleyball. Were there a bunch of people playing volleyball over the the Mexican border or something? That
4: would be interesting. You could yeah. stretch the net right there, yeah. I'm on to something. Mm, maybe. I'll I'll keep working on it. We'll have to see. Other news, Facebook has sharply increased the number of users whose data it says may have been improperly shared with the data analytics firm Cambridge Analytica from as many as fifty million to now as many as eighty seven million. Whoa. Most of them in the US. they Revelation Wednesday came as, a face, as Facebook released uh, due, due detailed plans to restrict data access. And shortly after a word that Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, has agreed to testify before a House panel next week, heeding calls from lawmakers to explain Facebook's role in the 2016 election and subsequent privacy crisis. In a rare call with reporters Wednesday afternoon, Zuckerberg was contrite. He said, it's clear now that we didn't do enough at preventing abuse. We didn't take a broad enough view of what our responsibilities were. That was a huge mistake. It was my mistake. Now, wow, that's quite an apology. Not really. It's probably like the fifth or sixth time they've made a similar apology, (laughs) announced new standards for privacy, and made changes on the website. Um, A lot of the changes you're going to start seeing where they put all the privacy options in one tab instead of like across like seven or eight different areas within your settings. That whole thing is happening because the European Union has passed a bunch of privacy laws and Facebook has to get online. So they're just going to change the entire platform instead of just what shows up in Europe.
3: But what else can you do? I mean, it sounds like he's doing what I guess you're supposed to do.
4: But this is like the sixth time they've come out and gone, Mm. you know, we've made a mistake. Uh, We just it was kind of an oversight. Site. we didn't see the scope of the problem it's just it's the same argument each time when they have a privacy issue
3: do you think somebody like mark zuckerberg is just so annoyed to have to deal with all yeah, of these issues absolutely this isn't what he wants to be doing
4: the platform is supposed to change the world unite the world slash sell everyone's data for advertising because yeah. that's how they make money
2: yeah of course. that's the whole
4: point and so everything they're doing is actually against their business plan <laughs> <laughs> Which is another issue. Yeah. Finally, uh, Crystal Gail Amerson, 29, said she woke up around 4 a.m. Sunday with stomach pains that had her running back and forth between the bathroom and the bedroom for more than an hour. I had Chinese food the night before, and I kind of figured maybe I had food poisoning or something like that, she said. But it turned out there was nothing wrong with the, uh, the chicken that she had eaten at the, uh, the restaurant the previous night. Unbeknownst to her, she was actually 37 weeks pregnant and was on, her, on the verge of giving birth to her second son. <laughs> Okay. Every yeah.
3: time we hear one of these stories, uh-huh. you just your first thought is, "How on earth does she not know that she's my, pregnant?" My
4: wife's always like liar because there's oh, no yeah. way. She, yeah, I mean, my wife knew several weeks in. Like, oh, I don't feel well, and but how could you go 37 weeks and not know you're pregnant?
3: I mean, there is a growth that. Uh, that it happens, right? So
4: Emerson called off work at 5 a.m. An hour later as the pain worsened, she woke up her fiancé because they needed to call an ambulance. Emerson had already been through one pregnancy but said she was never the type to feel a lot of symptoms typically aligned with pregnancies such as morning sickness or others. She also said she didn't notice much weight gain. Emerson said the EMT who helped deliver Oliver had never delivered a baby solo before, so there was a lot of firsts that morning.
3: With her pregnancy, so Becca, you've never had children, but what is your perspective on this as the woman in the room?
0: Well, uh, I know they made a whole TV show about it. Like this isn't—I mean, this (laughs) happens apparently enough that you can—you can find enough stories.
5: Wow. Um,
6: I guess it it depends on your body type. You know, I'm pretty petite. I feel like I would notice if I was 37 weeks pregnant, but that's not the case for everybody. Depending on where you
0: carry your weight.
4: Interesting. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, it, w- it didn't say the baby was underweight or there was any, you know, like a preemie situation. Obviously, 37 weeks is far along in the process. So it's like you got a full-size baby in there. How do you not know? I just thought I was bloated for 37 weeks.
5: Hmm. Hmm.
4: And how do you not notice like a at least a six-pound, you know, weight gain, but then it's more than that with everything else involved? Yeah,
3: that is crazy. You know, I think, Becca, you have a good point, though. It probably has to do with your body weight or your body type before getting pregnant. Uh,
4: or, or is it like an insurance scam? Well,
3: that could be.
5: I
4: don't know. Well, I, don't I don't know don't, how that would work. I don't think because... those
3: pre existing condition things uh, apply in pregnancy, though. Oh. Yeah. As far as I know. Okay. But what do I'm I I'm mean? just
4: trying to think of another reason why this story would keep – I mean, it comes up every few months. There's sure somebody does. else who has an unexpected pregnancy. and I'm like,
3: really?
6: I mean, talk about a surprise, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, you were a surprise. That adds a whole other level.
4: The this... unexpected part's usually at the beginning of the process, not at the end when you're having the kid. You're right. like, whoa, hey. This is the
3: type of thing that – you kind of alluded to this, Terry, but this is the type of thing that would probably make my wife a little mad. Yeah, because she does not have pleasant pregnancies, mm. or like, oh, it's thirty-seven weeks. I'm I'm now just now starting to feel pain. Yeah, she struggles for most of the
4: time. Yeah, it's tough. But I guess if most most people would prefer that process, because it sounds like it's pretty easy for that woman. Yep, she just kind of hey, just pregnant, no problem. Where other people have you know sicknesses and other issues along with it. So
3: well, we wish her well, and uh, maybe some of that pain will come in. During the actual delivery, but we don't need to talk about that. When we return, uh, we're going to be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Vivian Zayas about first impressions and how they have a lasting impact here on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you always hear people say to be careful not to judge others, but judging others is actually an innate part of us. When we first meet someone, our brains automatically start making judgments about them based on anything we see or gather about them in the first seven seconds. But could the first seven seconds with someone actually determine the rest of your relationship with them? Well, Vivian Zayas, an associate professor of psychology at Cornell University, joined us several months ago to discuss her research on the impact of first impressions on relationships. Matt Townsend began the interview by asking if first impressions really do stick with us.
0: I mean, that's a really great question. We are social beings, and we want to make sense of another person. So when we meet someone, we fill in the blanks. We want to be able to predict What they're gonna do and especially we want to know if this is a person that we can trust right so we want to be able to know is this a someone who we can trust or someone that's gonna be threatening to us Um, and we as you said we use a number we use all available information to make a quick assessment about whether we are gonna trust this person and also what this person um, might do in the future and no go ahead And in some of our research, what we find is that uh, impressions that we form, even based on simply viewing a photograph, that those impressions are pretty predictive of how you're going to feel about the person after you've had an extensive 20-minute interaction where you're trying to get to know the other person. So um, some of these impressions are pretty um, sticky and um, impervious to change. Now, the question of how long... You know, how much information do you need to change that initial impression is one that we're still Hmm. information about.
7: So really, but but, I mean, you can see because the this this first impression part of our brain, I'm assuming, is all about, you know, survival, fight or flight, safety first. And it would you would think that it would probably create a pretty deep belief system or a belief set. And uh, it seems like that might be hard to pull out later.
0: Um I, you are right that we, if you think about our whole entire life, we have a lot of experience with people. We have a lot of experience with faces, and we become experts in processing faces and associating faces with certain types of behaviors. So we are very uh, skilled at making inferences based simply on a face, and once we you know, our preferences based on we like this person, we might not know why we like them. It could be that, you know, they remind us of our dad or our mom or or people that we know. That's really hard to undo. Right. And and you're absolutely right that that is really hard to undo. Um, Is it impossible to undo? Probably not. But the way that we operate is that when we like someone, there's something about them, we're drawn to them, then we tend to be warmer towards them. We smile more, we engage with them more, we, and, and then they pick up on that. And then they're warmer and they're more engaged. And mm. so we sort of create the self-fulfilling prophecy, and we don't tend to try to seek out information that disconfirms our, in, our initial impressions. But if that information became apparent to us, so if we learned something that was really horrific— then we might very well um, change that impression, yeah um, but we tend to not look for that type of information, and we don't tend to encounter that information that often
7: I so, mean so it can hurt you too, right, because if you have a really good first impression that isn't warranted or based on real information, you might you might be in that relationship a lot longer than you probably should have
0: yeah, absolutely um, so in One study that we did, we had um, participants make a judgment about whether they would like a person based solely on viewing a photograph of them. And they also made judgments about the person's characteristics, their personality. Is this an extroverted person or introverted person? Does this person look like they're a conscientious person or more impulsive, disorganized? Um, And what we found was that those impressions stayed with us so after later on they had an opportunity to meet the person Hmm. and have a 20-minute interaction where they could ask the person about their life about who they were and sort of get to know the person more but if the initial impressions were that the person was conscientious they left that interaction the 20-minute interaction thinking that that person was conscientious another participant might have looked at the person based on the photograph and thought the person looks to be disorganized or impulsive, when that participant interacts with that same person, they walk away thinking, oh yeah, that person was impulsive, they're <laughs> disorganized. And that is a problem when we're trying to find you know, someone who's compatible with us in a relationship. Yeah, Whether it's uh, a partnership, whether it's a friendship, maybe it's a colleague, you're trying to hire someone. A new
7: hire, right.
0: Um, so we may be led astray when by these initial impressions.
7: So the initial impression may actually then set us on the path of trying to validate the first impression, that, that we're right. And then instead of looking for contrary evidence, boy, this could impact dating. This could impact a lot of things. And in your research, I guess you've done many studies. What overall was that the biggest aha is just that we tend to try to revalidate the initial impression?
0: Um, Well, in social psychology, we've known that we tend to, as human beings, we tend to seek out information that that reaffirms what we already know. Um, I think here, uh, one of the takeaways is with regards to, these are very subtle preferences um, based on a photograph. So we had people look at a photograph, do you like this person, do you not like this person? And, and those, they were re- relatively subtle judgments. I mean, people didn't really have, they didn't yeah. dislike. They were more neutral or lukewarm. And that that continued, those impressions stayed with them even after meeting with them for 20 minutes, but that it colored how they judged their personality. I think that was very powerful mm. there to to see that it wasn't that oh I, I still like that person, but they walked away with a completely different view of that person, one that actually didn't match who the person was.
7: Hmm. Like made up, we did. Did they make up? Or I guess they just selected the things and then, you know, went with them.
0: Well, it's um, our thinking is that. When you like someone, you make a number of inferences about other characteristics. You tend to think that they are socially skilled, that they um, have better relationships, that they do better at work. This is called the halo effect. Mm -hmm. And when we, in this context in uh, our study, when participants had a chance to interact with another person for 20 minutes, you're getting some information about who they are, but you still don't know... A lot and we fill in the blanks and we tend to fill in the blanks by thinking that the person has these personality characteristics that are actually um, very difficult to assess in a even in a 20-minute interaction the one personality characteristic that people tended to show that they were were revising their initial impressions was on extroversion and our thinking is because that's a a personality trait that is readily apparent uh, in a social interaction. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier to see. Oh, that person seems like they're a little bit introverted versus extroverted in a 20-minute interaction. It's a bit harder. Not obviously not impossible, but a bit harder to see if someone is uh, conscientious, right? Unless they're pulling out their planner right. or telling you about their schedule. We we don't have that information. We're not seeking it out, and then. We then fill in the blanks and we we tend to think that if we like someone, well, they're probably organized um, and, you know, they tend to follow through with what they say. So we we then just fill in the blanks. Yeah, we don't have the actual information.
7: So what I'm learning is uh, we have a first impression. We're really. I, I guess this is part of our problem about impressions, first impressions or benefits. We're very efficient. It seems like we very efficiently gather a bunch of information that's available to us, and we make a, we make an interpretation, and, I, and that's probably to save ourselves to protect ourselves. But uh, overall, are our first impressions very accurate?
0: That is a you know really great question. In this particular study depends on the judgment, right? Right. So in this one, your first impression of whether you like someone, whether you will like someone, whether you would want to be friends with that person, whether you would want to go out with that person. If you're looking at a photograph and you make that guess, that's actually a pretty good predictor of what you will say after you have a short, you know, 20 minute interaction with that person. And so that type of judgment you know you might not know the person you might really not have a really good sense of what their personality is about or but you like them
5: mm-hmm.
0: and after a 20 minute interaction you will probably still like them and so I think that type of judgment you are accurate there at um,
5: now
7: are you accurate are you make are you only gathering the data that makes sure you're accurate
0: well we're using in in those types of liking judgments we Rely a lot on facial appearance. Uh-huh. And, you know, again, we've had so much experience with different people in our lives. We're familiar with some people. Some people f- feel like we know them, they know us, and that's, you know, based on facial appearance. Yeah, yeah. And when we see a face, one of the first um, judgments that w- we make is, you know, trustworthy or not. And there's a study by um, Cooper. Um, where they scanned people in an fMRI scanner to see what were the brain regions that were activated while people are judging another person, hmm. um, based looking at solely at their photograph. And people here were making judgments about whether they would date the person or not. And what they found was that one region that was activated is a region that's involved in self-referential thinking. And the... I think the assumption that the authors made was that what people are doing is saying, you know, is this person like me? Are they similar to me? And often what we do when we judge whether we like someone, whether we would date someone, it's not so much that we're saying, oh, they're really attractive versus not. But you're saying, are they for me? Are they someone that I could be with? And it's re- you can imagine a situation where you say, "Oh yeah, that person's really attractive," but I don't, they don't feel right for me.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And 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 we do that often. But what's really predictive is, oh, they there's something about them that feels right for me, and um, and those judgments based on a photograph do predict how you'll end up feeling uh, after that twenty minute interaction.
7: Hmm. What uh, what advice do you give now? Anything different? about, you know, people that are dating and first impressions?
0: Well, one thing that um, we are looking into is if we, um, during the interaction, give participants a set of questions so that they're really encouraged to get at a more deeper, more intimate level and get more... um, diagnostic information about the person, whether that would help hmm. in in the process of really getting to know who that person is and may help people sort of change their impressions if this is not the person that in the end will be right for them. Um, so we're looking to see whether these types of more guided questions might help you. Um, because currently what happens is You see someone's photograph, you like them. Then later on, a few months down the road, you get to interact with the person. You might not know that you had judged them earlier. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that if you like the person based on their facial appearance, you tend to, as we talked about earlier, um, seek information that confirms those initial impressions. And that involves the types of questions you ask. But maybe if um, you ask different questions – about hobbies or about, um, you know, either religious or political beliefs and so on, you might get information that might change those initial impressions. Hmm. And and those may be really important pieces of information to learn about a person.
7: Right. And also, I'm assuming you you would go into different parts of your brain by depending on the quite like you're not just in your fight or flight brain if you're trying to figure out more about them. Right. You're probably in the prefrontal cortex or learning or doing something else. I mean, that that would change what you can see.
5: Right. You're, That's
7: powerful. Right. What a cool. So then it's kind of then, then we just need some scripts, right? Something to prompt us through a better interview, which is because you see all the people now on Tinder, left, right, left, right, left, right, making right. these decisions very quickly. Um, but not necessarily – eventually, if you're going to make a relationship work, you're going to have to know a lot more than just the gut first impression.
0: Right. And it's interesting to think about uh, if you just – I mean, the gut is, in, is important right. in romantic relationships. Um, but what ends up happening is you might invest a lot based on, your, on sort of these gut reactions. But there's these other aspects that are also really important in making that relationship work. And by the time that you learn about these other aspects that might actually be deal breakers, you've already invested quite a bit in this relationship. And it might be harder to, at that point, start putting on the brakes. And then you might be in a relationship that might not be ideal. Yeah. Because you learned about these other aspects of the person after you've already invested quite a bit emotionally.
5: Mm.
7: Boy, powerful, though. I mean, great research. And we appreciate you uh, being willing to share it with us. Dr. Zayas, thank you again. Vivian Zayas is her name. If you if you want to follow her on Twitter at Dr. at DR underscore VZ at DR underscore VZ, you'll you'll be able to follow more of her research. And really, I think it's just the beginning, right? The cutting edge of understanding impressions, first impressions. And remember that First impressions, we as humans will tend to validate them. We want to validate what we think we know, uh, which means you don't always find out more in the second interview, the second series of questions. You might just find out that they're exactly what you thought they were. Open our minds. That's the goal of the show. Give you some other tools. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
4: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends.
7: You know, um, just like life, it seems crazy, doesn't it? A little chaotic for many of us. But uh, there are some constants. And one of the things I wanted to talk about in this corner is, is see if we can't help you see that there are a few things that are going on. That are predictable, that are a lot uh, easier once easier to uh, live your life once you understand a few basic rules. So here are four rules to make your life more predictable, especially in the relationship area. Uh, the first rule would be remember that your hardest relationships are your greatest teachers. Nothing is harder for us in life than to interact with other human beings. Nothing tests our own resolve more than other people. So, uh, we, we if we could start to see that our relationships are nothing more than just another opportunity to live our values, to uh, to to grow, to develop, instead of just always assuming or or hoping, I guess, really, that we're going to be able to to derive, uh, you know, what we're looking for out of the relationship. Like, if what you want is a is a really uh, awesome deal on something. Um, And you're trying to negotiate it with another human being and that person just makes it really, really difficult. What would happen if you could see that moment as an opportunity to learn as a fact that this this person is not just a barrier in your life, but actually but instead kind of a doorway to creating um, more growth, more development to make it so the next time you're going to have a better chance of making something happen. So see your relationships as your greatest spiritual practice. And see your relationships as a teacher. Another highly predictable theme, thing that I think we could all do is assume that bad behavior is simply uh, or is generally unintentional, unaware, or unskilled people. Uh, most bad behavior are not created by a bunch of evil spawn of darkness, they're not just all out to get you, they're not all trying to figure out ways to make your life more miserable. Most of the time, it's just unintended. <laughs> People were unaware or they didn't know what they were doing. No, 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 Matt. Matt, they are – they're totally intentional. But uh, it's a different paradigm. The minute you think it's unintentional and they're unaware, then you can actually do more about it than than just give up or fight or complain. You can actually just accept what's going on. They didn't know you were standing there when they – butted in line or they were unaware or they were unskilled. Maybe they don't know how lines work. But um, the benefit of it is whether, by the way, it's true or not, it can make you feel different when you assume somebody didn't didn't uh, do something because of ill will. Then you don't have to immediately jump to the negative conclusions that they're out to get you. You don't have to be as afraid. You don't have to be as defensive. And so in reality, the ability that you have to shift your paradigm to assume that your husband, um, you know, not wanting to talk, it, don't assume it's that he doesn't like you or doesn't care about you. Maybe it's just he doesn't know how or he wasn't aware that how important it was to you. Well, no, I've told him 20 times. Yeah. And he still may not be aware or it's unintended. He doesn't know that it's that painful for you. His intention is just to actually avoid a fight, not to hurt you. Make sense? And there's so much power in starting to see your, the, the people that are around you um, uh, not as, as so harmful. Napoleon had a quote that said, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by incompetence. We don't have to attribute somebody's lack of competence to, to maliciousness because the minute you do, now you're dealing with somebody that's, that's really dangerous, right? Another rule that we, can, that we can remember as we interact with other people in our lives is that your emotions are always about you. Emotions are there, then they're there to protect us, and they're there to help manage how we act, to help us magnify our opportunities, minimize our pains. And when we are angry at somebody uh, for something that they've done, remember that that anger is always uh, uh, is always about you. It's not about what they did. It's about you. It's about how you're interpreting it. It's about how it's impacting you. The times I am most angry or frustrated with my kids, it's about me. Well, no, Matt. It's because they're down playing Fortnite and they should be going to bed. <laughs> um no that's probably not it. Part of it might be why am i not managing my family better? Why am i not more involved? Why am i not why did i make the decision to buy games that i didn't feel i should buy? It's emotion is about you and it's important because that you recognize that because the minute you sense it's about you then you can actually do something about it. If i keep thinking that my emotion is about my everyone else that's around me that's causing my emotion then i'm probably giving up too much pain and power over what I feel, over what I think, over what I do. Don't give up your power. Own your emotions. Allow yourself to feel what you're feeling. Let the emotion teach you where you need to dedicate more time and attention to something. And instead of just blaming others for feeling what you feel, why don't you just own your emotions and, and, uh, and start to see if you can't change them. And Last but not least, there's an interesting uh, other lesson that's feeling lucky is just as good as being lucky. You don't need to be lucky to feel good about your life. Just the mere fact that you feel like you're lucky, that's enough. You, I mean, the the crazy benefit of thinking that you've got some uh, some you know streak of luck going is actually going to help you be happier, feel younger, heal faster. Feeling like you're lucky lucky makes your approach to certain tasks different. Gives you more confidence, more effectiveness. So start telling yourself how lucky you are and blessed you are in fact, maybe more importantly, start counting your blessings every single day, and amazingly you 'll actually feel more blessed. Feeling lucky is just as good as being lucky a little a uh, little insight for you folks it's just you know it 's just my advice doesn 't mean it 's right. <laughs>
3: It's the part of the Matt Townsend Show where we head on down to Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation to find out what's coming up on their program here in just about 10 minutes. Spencer and Jerem, how are you?
2: Fantastic! George. How are you, Jeffrey? I am doing a
3: lot better than this guy, uh, Tony Finau. Did you guys hear about this?
2: Oh, we saw it, and uh, our heart breaks for him. That said,
1: and his ankle almost did as well.
2: He is playing <laughs> in the Masters today. He's playing. Tony he is. Finau is playing.
1: Wow! Today, now, now the connection to uh, BYU, by the way, is he was committed to come play here. Is my understanding. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he was actually just too good, so he went pro. Wow. He's, he's a BYU guy. He's hung out on campuses recently as a few weeks ago with the women's team. Uh, he's good friends with Reno Mahe, former BYU running back and coach. He's a Utah guy, and uh, he's made Utah really proud with the way he's represented and played on the PJ Tour. Yesterday gets a hole-in-one and celebrates a little too hard, dislocates his ankle. He had an MRI this morning. Uh, it's a high ankle sprain, but he's still going to play. Now, here's the deal. You have to walk all 18. That's so, true. No cart required. or You cannot have a cart uh, at Augusta and, and this on this event. So I, I don't know how he's going to do, should he make it to Sunday, all four days on a high ankle sprain. That's incredible.
3: Well, anybody that will pop their ankle
2: back into place, yeah. that, he's a stud.
1: He's awesome. That's, well, Jack DeMuny. He played a few more holes yesterday.
2: Yeah, Jack DeMuny. After that. Who is... Uh, close with Tony Finau and said, look, when, when you grow up on the islands and you hurt yourself, that's just what you do. You pop things back in place and you go back to work.
1: <laughs> Incredible. Wow.
2: And what
3: about this guy? I, I probably will butcher the name, Shohei Ohtani. You got it right. An Angels pitcher making his Major League Baseball debut.
1: Ohtani-san. Hits a home run. That's and, awesome. Yes, and then he hit another one. He's got two already. So, so Sunday, Sunday he pitched. And then Tuesday he hit a homer, and yesterday he hit another one. Oh, Tani-san, It's incredible. So he's the first dude in back-to-back games that he plays to hit to pitch and win and then hit a homer since Babe Ruth. He's Whoa. the Japanese Babe Ruth. Like, what? He's done something to be in the same company as Babe Ruth, which Outstanding. is incredible. So you
3: yeah. know what's crazy is when they need a good pinch hitter and he's not on um, you know he's not scheduled he's to pitch, so just call on him.
1: Well, now the question becomes with him is, th- so th- they're giving him days off after he hits and before he pitches, mm-hmm. and, and and vice versa, you know, just to give him space. Um, do they need to play him more? Like, is he too good not to play?
2: He's the number eight hitter.
1: They are playing for the wild card anyway. The Astros are going to win like a hundred gajillion games. <laughs> they're so, they're in, the best team in the majors, in my opinion. And of course, the World Series champs. So it's an interesting dilemma. Thank you, dilemma. For, thank the you for adding just, that. Yeah, hopefully the Angels just stink, though, because I want the Mariners to uh, get a wild card spot as well.
3: Really? Yeah. You know, the
1: Mariners—they're
3: always just like right there, and then they just can't quite pull it out.
1: Yeah, story of my life. Like good, but not good. Story
3: at all. of my. Isn't that a song? One Direction. How does that yes. go again?
5: The story of my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's there's a series of YouTube videos where people have dubbed it over and uh, they sing a song like it looks like it's being sung. Not like it is actually sung. Now, Does wait a sense? minute.
3: So you brought up a different song than the one I w- had in my head. What were you thinking so of? So you were singing,
1: story of my life. One Direction. Yeah. Okay.
3: But what about the other one? Story of my life.
2: I have no idea what you're talking about. That wasn't enough to know. We're playing (laughs) Name That Tune and we didn't. You failed. Fail.
3: You failed or I failed, depending on how you look at it. (laughs) So anyway, what is coming up on BYU Sports Nation here in just about six minutes?
2: Oh, what isn't coming up on BYU Sports Nation? We've got the brand new ESPN College Football Power Index and their projected win totals specific to BYU. Is it enough for BYU to be bowl eligible? Hmm. I
1: was surprised by the number. Wow! You may or may not be. Can you can you share
3: it with us now? No. Nope. Okay. Tune in. All right. Uh,
1: is Mike Weir's 2003 Masters win, former BYU Cougar, is that the greatest individual accomplishment ever? As Masters uh, round one begins today, we will discuss.
2: Hmm. We've got an Angels triple A pitcher <gasps> on the show today. His name is Taylor Cole. He is pitching for the Salt Lake Bees. He's one call away from being Shohei Otani's immediate teammate. Ooh. Plus, Brennan
1: Anderson, second baseman for the Batcats, cats the BOA baseball team, who opens up a series uh, tonight that you can listen and watch uh, at 8 Eastern on BYU TV. Cougars against Santa Clara. We'll talk to Brennan. Uh, Mike Littlewood, the head coach, yesterday telling Jason Shepard, this is a must-sweep series. Why? Why? And other comments about selfishness on the team, what they need to do to kind of turn things around.
3: Speaking of selfish, I mean, you guys never give us more than just a little bit of a tease.
2: That's the whole point of You're right. There are only like six things.
3: <laughs> mm. No, 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 no. You're not selfish. You just know good TV.
1: Coming up after the break. Exactly.
3: That is coming up on BYU Sports Nation here in just about five minutes. Spencer and Jerem have a great show.
1: Thank you, Thank Jeffrey. you, Jeffrey.
3: <sighs> it's still not fair, though. You realize that. They tease us with these amazing guests, interviews, stories that they're going to be doing, and we don't get any of them. Oh, come on! I know. Wait, did Matt just get here?
0: That was his ghost. Oh, okay. He misses us. Will we hear every time he's thinking about
3: us. Don't worry. He will be back very soon. Until then, you're stuck with me. That's not the way I would describe it. I'm sure if my mom were listening, she would say, you're blessed with me.
8: I'll bet she is listening.
3: Thanks, Mom. She probably is. Anyway, as you know, we like to end each one of our shows with a hero story of the day. And today is another great one. A Louisiana woman is calling Youngsville Police Chief Ricky Boudreaux her hero. This comes after Lynette Rogers fell asleep at the wheel and flipped her car into a canal on Sunday morning. Tired and behind the wheel, Rogers was rounding a steep corner on Highway 89. Wait a minute. Highway 89, just like the program on BYU Radio. Anyway, I digress. She was rounding a steep corner on Highway 89 when her car went through several signs flipping over into the canal. She was pinned in her car upside down for hours, slipping in and out of consciousness until she says there was a saving grace. A man walking by noticed the car in the canal and called the police department to see if someone had reported the incident. Police Chief Ricky Boudreaux was on his way to church. He made a U-turn Instead of going to church, I headed to the call location. The other first responders had arrived about two minutes before me, and they were all standing around the canal, and pretty much the general consensus was who was in the car had expired due to being upside down in the water. Nobody had checked the vehicle, so I immediately, when I got out, just kind of jumped into action, Boudreaux said. What he discovered next shocked everyone at the scene. She was sort of a blue color, so I was expecting her to be deceased. I reached into the vehicle to touch and feel for a pulse, and she popped her head up and said, I'm alive. And she really startled me, Boudreaux said. First responders worked quickly, getting Rogers out of her Jeep. Realizing her ankle was shattered, she needed medical assistance quickly. Rogers says she owes her life to Chief Boudreaux. And he will forever be my hero, not to mention the guy that made the call to get Chief Boudreau there. So lots of heroes in this story. And just another reminder for us each and every day that we can find ways to be a hero, even if it's in a very small way, and we encourage you to do that. That's going to be it for uh, the Matt Townsend Show today. We'll be back tomorrow, but until then, we've got BYU Sports Nation, which is coming up next.